Hit contents check. In them you'll find 145 caliber automatic, two boxes of ammunition, four days concentrated emergency rations, one drug issue containing antibiotics, morphine, vitamin pills, pep pills, sleeping pills, tranquilizer pills, one miniature combination Russian phrase book and Bible, $100 in rubles, $100 in gold, nine packs of chewing gum, one issue of prophylactics, three lipsticks, three pairs of nylon stockings. Shoot, a fella could have a pretty good podcast with all that stuff. Boy, oh boy. I didn't know what you were going to do. I didn't know if you were going to do Strange Love or... or uh, I felt I like know. some of them are so overquoted that I I almost felt like I couldn't do them. Well, for yeah, that, that was good. I like that. Doing yeah. Fighting in the War Room feels like we're stepping on our buddies at Fighting in the War Room, the podcast. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, I, I was like, what? Sir, I have a plan. Mein Fuhrer, I can <laughs> podcast. Like, that's not, I don't want to fucking say Mein Fuhrer at the top. I want to wait 30 seconds before saying Mein Fuhrer. I wanted you to say Mein Fuhrer, I can podcast. Is Mein Fuhrer, I can walk? Is it? Is that actually the last line? Like, does anyone say anything else after that? No, right? No, no. then it's just it. Apart the from song. the song. The song, right. It's a, it's a pretty good last line. I'll also say this, like I, I, uh, for whatever reason, battling insomnia was watching Robin Hood last night, Disney Robin Hood. Okay. And the second I started doing that butchering, I was like, oh, fuck, even though I watched Strange Love this morning, I'm having a hard time staying in the moderately more grounded Slim Pickens than Sheriff of Nottingham Slim Pickens, who's like, oh, listen here, I'm going to get Robin Hood. It's the last thing I do. The only thing Strange Love is missing is is Roger Miller songs. I feel like that really would have taken it over the top. A little whistle stop, you know, would be beautiful. Could you imagine if the Crazy Frog did like a a a remix of a Strange Love song? (laughs) Wait, I'm sorry. What is that a reference to? You remember Crazy Frog? I remember Crazy Frog. Sure, and Crazy Frog had like beepity a beepadaobo, right? Oh, that's right. Okay, it's a sped up version of one of the Roger Miller Odalali songs in Robin Hood. Do you guys want to start over? Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Oh no, 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 no. We're gonna keep it going. That's right. It's perfect. Yeah, it's perfect. Oh wow. How else to talk about this movie? We're aiming to do the Doctor Strange Love podcast episode, something that is both so intelligent and savage in its razor sharp wit, but yet funny, just fucking <laughs> gut busting. Like it's so serious, but so funny at the same time. I think we're nailing it. I think we are. Yeah. I I want to put forward a, a thesis very early on in this episode. Mm hmm. Is this one of those movies that just like absolutely ruined a lot of filmmakers? <laughs> okay, what do you mean? I do think a lot of people go off the deep end trying to make this movie in particular, a thing that like very few people have ever even gotten close to doing. What's a movie you're thinking of? Like what's what's an example of a, a whatever, a satire gone wrong, I guess, or or whatever you're thinking of? Uh Last 10 Years of Adam McKay. That's a good, that, I, I would say that's a good example. There you go. Yes. Because you can always say like, oh, I'm doing the right, the, the light dark thing, like strange love. Like, right. it's going to be, it's going to have a message. It's going to be uh, intelligent. It's going to be researched, but also it's going to be funny. And that last part's really hard. It's going to be silly. Like, we'll have some broad comedy in it. You know, we'll have comedic performances. It's not just like bone dry satire. Uh, that mix of tones. I mean, I'm going to come up with some other ones as we continue talking, but I feel like the other ones are more maybe errant films in people's careers, but they tend to be some of their biggest bounces. Like like 1941. Sure. Yes. Yes. 
right? Yeah. That's trying to mix light and dark. I don't know. What do you think? Guess, speak. I mean, it depends, right? Because it's all it's all contextual, right? It's like in yeah. the 60s, it's a little bit easier to push this and be abrasive and impressive because there's no social media. There's no commentary universe. There's no podcasting. So the first person who created the first black comedy about nuclear warfare was always going to was always going to be the victor right and it just so happened to be maybe the smartest person who ever made a movie and sure. so when you put those two things yeah, together he got I, out I there it, in front right yeah he 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 kind of he shit all over the landscape for lack of a better phrase uh but i think you're right though that mckay is this is probably his north star right as a movie this is like the yeah. number one thing that has been made that he is striving towards and just changing the subject ever so slightly and trying to do absurdist, ridiculous, deathly serious all at the same time. And um, it's hard to do. This movie is a one of one. There's not a single thing in the movie universe, I think, that you can like accurately compare it to. Well, and not to like gang up on McKay, but it is one of those things where you're like, oh, he, he pretty much made like four or five masterpieces in a row to start off his career. But it was because he found his own recipe for like cranking up the goofiness, the silliness, the absurdity, and then putting a surprising amount of seriousness underneath it. And then the more he's been like, I want to get the exact Kubrick ratio and tonally present itself on that level, the more you're like, these have become less funny and the points you're making start to feel less nuanced and more you're yelling at me. Like it's it, the thing that doesn't work is when people try to make exactly this movie. Like Iannucci has done a great job doing things that are similar to this, but finding his own style and tone rather than directly trying to lift the, the strange love vibe that I think dooms a lot of people. Look, this is a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. Very fast. It is a show about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce, maybe. And this is a miniseries on the films of Stanley Kubrick. It is called Pods Wide Cast. A lot of people were disappointed that we didn't make the miniseries title a riff on Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Wearing and Love the Bomb just because there were so many words to play with there. Missed opportunity. Yeah, I guess they thought that'd be funny. Oh, you think it's a missed opportunity? Shit. All right. Well, we can always go back, bro. Yeah, how I learned to stop potting and love the cast i mean that's yeah. it's, it's right there for you i, like, I know pod's wide cast just felt so funny to me griffin was <laughs> resolute about it was this immediate. and sometimes yeah. we fight and sometimes i'm just sort of like yeah okay yeah, that's fine you know and i just i i seeded this one immediately i did not have a hot counterpoint to this one so it's pod's wide cast i just think it's rare you have like a three-word title where you can sub in pod and cast, and it so clearly could only be one movie. And I think Eyes Wide Shut is such a good title to begin with. I, if, I, if I were to have taken a crack, and just to be clear, Pod's Wide Cast, it was like first pitch, best pitch. I just said, we're fucking going with this. We never even took it to the lab. We never threw it up on the whiteboard and tried to break down Dr. Strangelove. If I had tried to crack it, I think my approach would have been putting pod and cast in there three times each. Can I suggest one other option here? Yeah. You, you had full pod cast right in front of you. Sure. As an option. But and, that's... <laughs> and it seems simple, and yet it is so elegant. Yeah. Full pod cast. 
Full oh, podcast. What about what about Pod Metal Jack cast? <laughs> sure, that's less elegant. But Sean, you're getting exactly. You're getting a window window into this brainstorming process yeah. where someone <laughs> suggests something fairly simple, and Griff's yeah. like, uh huh, uh huh, and it sort of works its way through some little Rube Goldberg machine and comes back out really weird. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, and that's why I've learned not to fight. You, you and, and love the bomb. Um. <laughs> the, it, essentially, it's like. You, someone comes to me with a miniseries title suggestion, and then I go like, "Let's get that up on the fucking treadmill. Let's let's build a little sweat on that thing. Let's get you a little winded. You're doing a pleasant stroll up. It's like fucking Mandrake walking up and just going like, "Sir, I found something." I'm like, "No, no, 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 no. I'm gonna put you through the paces. Uh, Doctor podcast or how I learned to stop potting." I'm getting off and of this. Who cares? Lolpadita cast, I think. Lolpadita cast. That's it. That. Oh, that's great. And the best one, the best movie to invoke. I mean, that's right. the one you really want. Or yeah. front and center Podcast-ita. for people. How did they ever make a podcast out of Lolita? I want to. I want to. I want to say like three things based on other conversations we've had. Okay, please. One. Also, by the way, our guest is Sean Fennessy. Hi, the Ringer Universe host of the Big Picture, uh, f- fairly permanent. Sort of co-host of the rewatchables, right? You're on almost. Yeah, all of those. I'm on, on a lot most of those. Of those. I'm on a lot. I'm 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 just delighted to be witnessing naming of podcast series, which is uh, one of my favorite things that you guys do. So this is an honor. It's good to hear that that is enjoyed by people because yes. sometimes you have the thought, "Who on earth would want to hear this?" Well, but by me, uh, I'm not saying by people. Sure. I, I I enjoy it. Well, by You're person, a smart it's enjoyed guy. by person <laughs> at the very least. You are bar none one of the most requested guests in the history of show. You are the one. This is. I said this to my wife yesterday, Sean. I apologize. My wife doesn't know who you are. I said like, ah, <laughs> oh, the podcast tomorrow. Uh, we have like a a big guest, and she was like, who? And I said, Sean Fennis, and she's like, I don't know who that is. And I was like, well, he's our most requested guest. That's how I put mm. it to you to her. Uh, that's very sweet. I I'm grateful to her for not knowing who I am and ca- or caring. I am grateful to anybody who is excited and I'm excited. And as you guys know, I love your show and I love Dr. Strangelove and I love Stanley Kubrick and everything else that you're doing. So this is we it's weird. It's almost like I don't have anything to say. You know, that feeling when you've seen a movie and cool. you're like, they nailed it. Like I got nothing, you know, like this is a perfect document. Good. You good. Good, good. Ten out of ten. No, I, but there's two things I want to say already. So there are things to say. Yeah, you had a list of three things. Yeah, I forgot one of them already. But oh, when boy. we were talking about how this defeats comedic filmmakers, does it help that Stanley Kubrick isn't funny? Because maybe Stanley Kubrick isn't funny. We're gonna, and dig that's into why Doctor Strange Love works, right? Because yeah. the seriousness is so crystal, like it's so is so perfect, you know, and like that's what makes every joke funnier. And then my second point, pin in that. My second point is Mandrake secretly the funniest of the three sellers roles. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Like the Not actually the most underplayed. Yes, yeah. but actually the funniest. Yes. Mandrake talking about being captured by the Japanese is the funniest part of this whole movie. And I don't even know. I don't even understand that scene in full. But his performance is amazing. I feel like he could just, and I assume he was, just sort of do that for like hours. Just kind of keep talking in this like absolutely like uh, chummy way about horrible things like just yeah. just endlessly with it with this perfect like modulated it would be so funny to watch him just rattle stuff like that off it's kind of incredible like obviously yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go on a limb here i think peter sellers had quite a bit of range as an actor and sure. <laughs> it is stunning Settle that down. 
arguably his best <laughs> work has come from across his career the times he like almost violently underplayed things like when he he plays boring people better than maybe anyone in history for someone who's capable of going fucking huge and i was talking to a, a different uh podcast luminary named Sean, our, our buddy Sean Clements of Hollywood Handbook and the flagrant ones and everything. Uh, we, we were texting about, I don't remember what it started we were texting about, but it got to us talking about De Niro and Jackie Brown and how incredible a performance that is. And I was saying to him, like, I, I like study that performance once a year going like, what is the difference between how full this guy feels, even though De Niro is almost spitefully going out of his way to underplay it in every single moment, do as little as possible. And when you get to like De Niro and Limitless, where you're like, well, now he's actually doing nothing. And it's such a thin <laughs> line where it's like to actively play someone who's got so little going on is so deceptively difficult because you watch something like this, like Mandrake, and you're just like, this could have been played by any stuff shirt, any dramatic actor Kubrick hired to fill this. You could have had Sellers play a different character in this dynamic. You easily could have had Sellers play the Sterling Hayden character. And then you just have a guy who's like a straight man, right? Who would have been fine, but wouldn't have made this character as funny. And it's like, how is he making such active choices for such a passive guy? It's, it's kind of a magic trick. He is, um, well, one, he was he was supposed to play another character, right? He was supposed to be that fourth character. He's supposed to be Kong, and he wasn't Kong. Um, but so that's a, also a testament to how he could have basically played any character. Like, is he in that realm of, is there any character in any movie that he can't play that I guess is a man? Uh, because I, I don't know. I mean, he really is unusually good at tonal shift in performance across a movie like how many movies yeah. did he play multiple characters six seven like he's, he did it over and over and over again there's not really i guess eddie murphy is in the conversation for that alec guinness there's like only a handful of people who really have been able to do that the way that he has i mean you're of course forgetting and spoiler alert the end credit scene of dc league of super pets mm. in which uh, dwayne johnson simultaneously voices crypto the super dog black adam and black adam's dog <laughs> and all three share a scene together and it's it's a really thrilling wait how did of, they pull that off all three of them <laughs> sharing a scene my god you can't believe the synergy on screen i mean this this thing the the fucking ip surprises are off the chart <laughs> i love ip surprises can you tell I me love. more about black adam's dog what kind of dog is it uh yeah I what's think, his name i think he's like a doberman they never name him that's why i'm calling him black adam's dog they never name him on screen he talks a lot. He has a lot of dialogue. It's an end credit scene that feels interminable, where you're almost like, is this, am I just watching the sequel now? Is this going to be another 90 minutes of my life? That's the one thing that Strange Love is missing, I think, is like, a, is a stinger, you know, like yeah. teasing Strange Love 2. That's what I It's miss. almost missing, if I dare get the specific, Black Adam's dog. I feel like that's the character. <laughs> Bring him in. That's yeah. the fourth character that Seller should have played. I mean, I do remember watching this and being like, you know, I knew Sellers had almost played the Pickens character. And I was like, well, who else could he have played? And then I was like, well, he could have played Jack D. Ripper, right? He could have been Sterling yeah. Hayden. I was like, why didn't he do that? And then finally, I was like, oh, right. He would have been playing both characters in the same scene with no other characters. I guess that would have been hard. I, right. It, it, but that I even considered that for a while very doable. I was like, oh, he yeah. could have done that is, is, is a testament to his uh, how good he is at this. I think Eddie Murphy is really funny 
I'll just let that sentence stand. I think he's really funny. Sure, that's bold. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I, I think sometimes when he did the multiple characters, obviously it was incredibly successful. Yeah. But it never felt like this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no Eddie Murphy multiple role performance where you're like, man, these are really distinct. Instead, it's like, oh, Eddie Murphy found like a stupid thing to do as Mama Clump or what. I don't know. Am I wrong? Is that rude? I mean, I like that Honey Professor, the main two characters, obviously. Sure. Sure. I love that. Yeah. But beyond that, is there an Eddie Murphy character I I sort of love as much as one of these three? Maybe I'm being rude to well, Eddie Murphy. I think so. I mean, you're talking two nutty professors coming to America, Norbit. And is there another one I'm forgetting where he plays multiples? Norbit is the one we need to to set aside. I think. Yes. That's oh, coming to America. Bowfinger. Oh, well, Bowfinger. Fuck. Obviously, Bowfinger. That's just the two one. again. But that but, is the one. But that's they're the really one. distinct. So distinct. And yeah. especially because yes. one of them is yeah. like that's the absolutely one. no transformation. I think what's just so unique about this is Eddie Murphy, when he would do it, would sort of like sketch instincts go for like big handles on characters, like really right. distinct, right. defined looks, voices, clear internal games. And this, it's like, Sellers chooses to have two out of three characters essentially be straight men, you know, like very, very button down, quiet characters. It makes sense that they wanted him to also play another big, crazy guy. Right. And it also makes sense that they title this movie after the biggest, most cartoonish character he plays, because this movie's existence was pretty much predicated on Peter Sellers playing multiple characters seems to be big at the box office. Right. And that the takeaway from Lolita was like, Sellers maybe saved that movie commercially. We need more of that. That I mean, I, I think that that was also true for Eddie Murphy after yes. the, the Nutty Professor, which makes sense. It's, it's, a, it, it's slightly different, though, because the idea of greenlighting a nuclear age black comedy from the difficult man who made Spartacus and Lolita being predicated upon Sellers playing four characters is outlandish. I mean, it is like, forget about in 2022, like in any time in the history of Hollywood, that being the like, okay, we're a go picture here. Yeah. Take, take a shot at it. It's, it, it makes it feel impossible. It, it's almost like if like Catherine Bigelow making Zero Dark Thirty was dependent on Will Ferrell playing three <laughs> characters in it. <laughs> or Chris Pratt. Right. Or Mark Duplass. Yeah, Duplass should have actually done that because Duplass is the man of a thousand face. <laughs> Anytime he shows up, I'm like, who is this? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what's even weirder is, okay, yes, Sellers had done The Mouse That Roared and, um, you know, that's he's playing multiple parts. Parties happened at this point or is the party later? The party is later. The party is surprisingly late. Is it 1968. Okay. I remember when I was shown the party, it was like one of my mom's friends. I was at like a dinner party and I was bored. And my mom's friend was like, oh, you can watch a movie. Uh, and she put on the party and she was like, this movie's really funny. It's, it's offensive. <laughs> but, you know, it's really funny. And I was like, I'm like 10 years old. I'm like, okay. And even at 10, I was like, hmm, it does seem offensive. But um, the, no, the party had not happened yet. No, my point was he'd done the mouse that roared. And then like you say, he only plays one character in Lolita, but I guess because that character changes his outfit and his manner enough, they were like, well, he was kind of doing it in Lolita. And that's that a Hollywood studio would look at Lolita and be like, 
more of more of sellers is what we need to make a Kubrick film hit. It's like you say, Sean, it makes no sense. Well, it's also you. I mean, at this point, our Lolita episode would have come out, but we haven't recorded it yet. We haven't yet. No, we're doing it next week. Have, have, you have not rewatched it, have you, David? I actually just rewatched it. OK, so, I mean, there is like the, the therapist scene where he's fully like in a yes. disguise playing a full character. Right. Where yeah. some of the other stuff is more like, oh, he's like loosely affecting a personality. Yeah, there's that scene like on the on like the patio. Yes. Where he is has his back to James Mason and is effectively playing a different person, but doesn't identify as but doesn't have a name or anything. No, like that. It, it's one of those things where I, I think he's simultaneously kind of the best part of the movie and ruinous to the movie. Totally. But I think everyone was sort of like, why is Kubrick making this movie? Why is Mason making this movie? This movie is going to be a career ruiner. This is disastrous. Don't touch it. And something about the sellers thing kind of like floated everyone along, salvaged that movie from being like a career ender for everyone involved. And I think they were like, well, this was a little more profitable than we thought it would be. And it must be because people love Peter Sellers putting on different glasses. I mean, I think the, the the critical thing that happens, though, is that he makes the Pink Panther. Like, if he doesn't make right. the Pink Panther immediately after Lolita, then I think the thing, what you're positing and the idea that this movie, like, that's why the movie got made, right? The, yeah. the Strange Love got made because he became Clouseau and he had already been a widely celebrated comic actor and he was this chameleonic figure. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, like, I, I love the fact that he's, like, going through a divorce while he's making this movie. You know, he's, like, having a very personal, like, a real personal struggle, which is why it's shot in England, because he can't right. leave. So he has to shoot at Shepard and Studios. Like, all yeah. of this stuff leads to it being a movie that probably, like, would you say it doesn't work at all if there's no Peter Sellers in it? No, I mean, this is getting back to David's point, is, like, I, I think the alchemy of this movie is that like one guy was pretty much handling the comedy and one guy was pretty much handling the seriousness of the thing. And right. when we talk about other filmmakers like jumping off a cliff trying to replicate this, the problem is usually it's a funny guy getting too self-serious or a serious guy trying too hard to be silly. And that's usually where the tone gets affected versus this movie where it's kind of like two guys meeting in the middle. Uh, and I don't know if there's another comedy star of this moment that could have done that i'm trying to find that the, the one thing i want to find is when they shot this just read the pink panther because right this well although i guess shot in the dark is, is this when? same When's year that? it's 64 shot in the dark is 64 the pink panther is 63 because this yeah. movie was delayed because of the assassination of oh that's of right Kennedy. oh right yeah so i want i'm trying to remember when it was shot but it looks like it was shot in 63 so i i don't know like it i think it came together in 63 so I, but it's just look. I, I got obviously. I have our dossier. We can we can get into how this movie got greenlit a little bit. But it is something that should just not work, and it and it wouldn't work most of the time. Most of yeah. the time, if you get people together to do a nuclear war comedy, it's probably just not going to work. But I mean, I guess also every movie that's a nuclear war comedy now has just the strange love shadow that you can't escape. And when you joked about this movie having a tag, I remembered that Don't Look Up has a tag, right? Yes, yes, yes. And, 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 and I get the tag. I get why they did the tag, because they're like, well, we have to have something funny at the end here and a right. little bit of poetic justice. But 
it also kind of undercuts the big sentimental ending of that movie. And I don't know if we want it or we need it. I don't know. Anyway. No, I think. Just the, thinking about yeah, the stakes. Look, I think the ending is the best part of that movie. I either like Me Don't too. Look Up more than most people or hate it less than most people. I don't know which of those <laughs> truths I'm closer to, but I'm certainly less negative on it than a lot of people. But I think the ending is the thing it gets right. And the tag is like a perfect encapsulation of everything it gets wrong and like Tag's the jo- just too it's too strong it makes your teeth hurt like, and I, also the the jonah hill performance like doesn't work it's it's the exact example of this where it's like here are two smart guys like mckay and hill making the most surface level observations about a dumb kind of person who represents a lot of the ills of current society with nothing to say beyond isn't this guy annoying isn't like social media yeah. stupid like everything he says is dumb. Yeah, I, I I feel similarly on Don't Look Up as as you, Griffin. Which is like, there's definitely good things in it. There's stuff it, in it, there. I agree. I, I agree with that. It's not. It's not. It it didn't totally cohere, and it's almost like too star studded for its own good. And it feels yes. like it's it's after some sort of like Poseidon adventure, towering inferno kind of a thing. But um, right. it's ironic because you could make the case, and David, you basically already said this. Like the last line of Strange Love might be the funniest moment in the movie. So funny. Yeah. And and the and the last the final moments of Don't Look Up are like deathly sincere. Like over like so earnest that it's almost painful and it's effective, but it it almost yeah. betrays the whole tone of the movie and then it makes you think like maybe Adam McKay should have just made an earnest movie about, you know, climate change and uh, annihilation. I I think so. Yeah. Well cuz He's so earnest. Like, he's in such an earnest place, I think, as an artist. And I do think you're right. He should just be making very earnest movies because it's often the satire that isn't functioning as well in the recent stuff. Yeah, I don't know. There's, like, human comedy in Don't Look Up that works well where I'm... Like, I think the dynamic between Chalamet and Lawrence is kind of interesting in terms Chalamet's of just like in that movie. Yeah, and just like how do you recalibrate your entire brain if you know that you're going to die and the entire world's going to end and nothing fucking matters, right? Why wouldn't I hang out with this dumb stoner kid in a parking lot? Like that stuff is good and then anytime it's like what if the president cared about how many followers she has? I'm like I don't <laughs> give a shit. I really like you have nothing to say here. But but yes, this movie, I mean, and you you talk about the ending being the funniest part of it. It's also like infamously, this movie was supposed to end with this extended pie fight, which would have been like the broadest sequence in the movie. And Kubrick watched it and he was like, this is too silly. It's too goofy. So you end like five minutes before it was intended to end and you end on like a comedy edit. Like the ending is funnier because the movie then ends so abruptly. I completely agree. It's like it ends on a jump cut to an explosion. That's right. amazing. That's yep. genius. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's like a MacGruber edit. That's what it is. I just realized. That's what it is. Yes. That's no, and you know what? And, and Kubrick was actually ripping off MacGruber and people he should point MacGruber. that out more often. <laughs> that's, you can read there the letters that Kubrick wrote to Will Forte and Yorma Tacombe where he said, I've studied your new Brilliant. three-part sketch. They weren't letters. They were faxes. You know, he they were faxes. Fax. Right. How did you do it? How did you find this mix? I think it was actually te- teletype, as I recall. It was not. Yeah, it was yeah teletype. you're right. You're right. You're right. He had a teletype machine in Spielberg's office or whatever. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. This is my first Kubrick. I assume huh. it may have been yours as well, or am I wrong? Maybe 2001, I guess, would be a lot of people's first Kubrick. Uh, but I was like 10 when I saw this movie. They were pretty close together. It was it was either that this or 2001. I watched this because AFI in the year 2000 did their 100 Years 100 Laughs, which mm-hmm. I was obsessed with as a comedy-obsessed kid. I'm like, finally, here we go, the comedies. And then it was one of those things where I sat there flummoxed, turning to my parents going like, this is supposed to be the funniest movies of all time. What, what is this serious black and white nuclear warfare movie doing? Right. Why, why is there all this discussion of missile codes and, right. and switching to channels or whatever? Right. And I, I remember Blockbuster had the like 100 years, 100 laughs display where they put all of those VHSs in the same little section. So this was like a quick rent for me after that special because it was, I think they put it at number three of all number time. Number three. Number three, above Annie Hall and behind Tootsie. Right. I feel like they redo a lot of this. Tootsie Some Like It Hot is the number one. Yes. I Tootsie remember at two is, is just strong. feeling wild. I don't know. Do you disagree with that, Sean? We all like Tootsie. We all I watched like Tootsie, Tootsie after that, and like Tootsie made a lot more sense to me as a kid than this movie did. But even still, I was like, this isn't the second funniest movie ever made. That's absurd. Well, this movie and Tootsie have a lot in common, right? Because they are extremely funny movies at, at, at stages, but they feel important. And Tootsie, yeah. I think particularly to Hollywood, feels very important. You know, it's like, this is about acting yeah. and transformation and identity and soul of art. And so it, it, it was like, you know, really valorized by the business. And then that's what, like the list that you're talking about. And I, I was just like, you guys, I worship those lists. I learned right. a lot by just looking at them and saying like, what's on my checklist? What do I have to go through? That's probably, it's definitely the reason why I got into Strange Love in the 90s when they did the first AFI 100 Years 100 right. movies. And I think he had the most movies out of any filmmaker on that, that list from, I think, 98. I think it was probably Clockwork Orange, Strange Love. And what was the third one? 2001. Uh, and Spartacus. He had four. He four. had Spartacus Jesus. on there, too. So four. Yeah. Uh, Sean, I threw this trivia out at David recently. Can you guess who is the actor who is currently the most represented on the main AFI 100 list? Ooh. It's an interesting one. I mean, like, gut, you would say, like, John Wayne or Catherine Hepburn or someone like that. Um, I don't know. Who is it? Robert Duvall. Oh, yeah. Because you have two okay, Godfathers, boy. Apocalypse Now, To Kill a Mockingbird, Network, and I think there's one other one Mash. I'm forgetting. Mash. And Mash, six. Wow. But not, but not a single lead performance. Exactly. Yeah, right. He was, that's true. Even though he led yeah. dozens of movies. Yeah. Yeah, but none of his leads. Duval and Network, uh, my single favorite funniest monologue ever, when he's toe-to-toe with Holden after Holden fails, and, you know, you know, we had a big, fat, big titted hit that that whole thing is like that is the pinnacle of overacting in my opinion he's amazing that's but that's another movie that similarly like this gets sort of an impossible tone right and in that it's like no traditionally comedic actors you have guys who mostly come from drama 
And it's such a fine tonal line on that film. And we, I mean, we talked about in a different episode, in a Shining episode, I think we talked about coming later, that Kubrick was like one of only three people who even met to direct that movie. And he and Chayefsky, they never, they never clicked. Why did they, I, you'd think that they would have been a, a match. Right. Chayefsky essentially said like, look, you're great and you're, you would do a good job, but we would kill each other. Like, we can't do this. Like, it's true. I mean, and like, and it makes sense. And he picks Sidney Lumet and like, that makes sense too. Like, it's just, I don't understand that. If, if, if blank check and the big picture can get together, I don't really see what the problem I know, is. I know. That's right. Anything <laughs> is possible because we're, we're such fierce competitors. Uh, Alphas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Four, four oh, alphas in the same Zoom window right now. <laughs> I mean, B- producer Ben Alfing us the most by not even speaking. He's fucking letting us all hang ourselves with our words. Ben, when did you see Strangelove for the first time? My uncle showed me when I was a kid, and I was similarly like Griffin, very underwhelmed. Crazy. I thought this was so funny when I saw it as a kid. I think... I like it. It remember it is like a thunderbolt moment when he says, "You can't fight in here. This is the war room." As a kid, I was just like, "Oh, that's like brilliant." Oh, I understand. Like, okay, like, and for I guess maybe the sellers thing was enough for me to yeah. lock into the humor of it, or maybe I was just also just compelled by the story because it is like a compelling story. They are sure. trying to avert World War Three. <laughs> like, there are stakes, but I was like so into this movie when I saw it as a kid. I yeah. As a kid, I think I didn't find anything funny in the movie until Strange Love himself shows up, where I'm just like, well, this sure, is recognizably right. comedic. Everything else was too subtle for me, where I even think, like, there's no fighting in the war room. Like, a lot of those lines are delivered so straight that as a kid, right. I just was like, this is not pitched like a comedy. I don't get this. Yeah, like, George C. Scott didn't read at all as like comedic performance God, but then him. watching it so funny like earlier today he's like incredible he's amazing like one of i think my favorite performances in the whole movie he's kind of the devall of this movie where he's like he's towing a really fine line of like overacting but with like a foot in reality and just making very small choices that sort of throw everything off the hump i was reading that he was he was kind of un, unhappy with this movie, right? Because yeah, Kub- yeah. Kubrick used his more over-the-top line readings and that, like he identified the comedy, but you know, George C. Scott is like one of the more serious theater and film actors of the last 50 years. So it's amazing. Well, for one, we should acknowledge that George C. Scott was the friendliest, nicest person who ever worked in Hollywood <laughs> and everyone got along with him. Of course. Easy. Have you Easy seen peasy. that? Oh my God. Wait, uh, have you seen? It's so good. Uh, fuck, uh, what's the Jiminy Glick interviewing Nathan Lane and asking about George C. Scott drinking on stage, <laughs> and Nathan Lane like just is in hysterics, unable to answer him. It's so. <laughs> I'll I'll find it and send it to you guys. But, I've been um, watching so much Glick. Recently. Jiminy Glick Me is too. the fucking funny, the funniest shit in the, the world. Best. I think he's like taken over TikTok or something. I don't know why I'm getting more of him recently, but he's sort of everywhere right now. No, I've been watching Glick Supercuts. How is that not streaming in its entirety anywhere? It's crazy. And it also could and should come back right now and just be a series. It would work It'd perfectly. It'd still be good. It'd be better probably. Right. 
there should be Glick every year. Like there was some year where he did the red carpet at the Spirit Awards or something. They gave him oh, like yeah. a little cabana and he was interviewing like Ed Bagley Jr. and shit. And I'm just like, send him somewhere to do something on camera at least once a year as Glick. He should do the Barbara Walters special every year before the Oscars. Yes. Like that should be his lane That's now. Should, right. He yeah. should just do that. Yes. I, I just remember him asking Ed Bagley Jr. How does it know? To, uh, how does it feel to know that you'll never surpass your father? <laughs> And he's like, well, I'm still alive. I'm still working. He's like, Ed, it's not going to happen. The George C. Scott thing is, I mean, he's he's an ornery guy, as as people may know. Um, But uh, he would do these, quote unquote, sort of practice tapes uh, that would not like that. You know, Kubrick was supposedly assuring him, like, we won't use these. Uh, well, let's kick off with these over-the-top performances. Get it out of your system. Get it out of your system, exactly. And then he, quote-unquote, used these warm-ups in the final cut, and George C. Scott says he didn't like that. But then there's also this whole thing where they would play chess all the time, because I guess George C. Scott fancied himself a chess man, and he yeah. respected that Stanley Kubrick, like, annihilated him at chess. He was like, right. you know, anyone who's good at chess is, is a, okay by George C. Scott. What are you drinking there? Can I have one of those? I added that. <laughs> Hammered chess with George C. Scott is also a show <laughs> yeah. I would watch. Yeah. 100%. That's like hot ones from the 1960s. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That might be a great YouTube idea, just playing chess with celebrities who are like, uh, what does the knight do again? And I'm just like <laughs> killing them. <laughs> also, like more directors should take lessons from hot ones and realize, like, oh, maybe all actors would be most interesting 10 wings up, 10 wings down. <laughs> Right. When you get them to a state of just raw honesty. No, I was going to say, I, it's funny because I feel like I've read so many different anecdotes about quote unquote serious or dramatic directors who work with like comedic actors uh, trying to cast them against type and that their process will often be to do the Kubrick thing and be like, after 100 takes, Jim Carrey is so exhausted that then you right. get the one real take out of him. Mm. You know, like Peter Weir, Michelle Gondry talk about that, where it's just like, you have to push him to go as big as possible because he's going to go as big as he can and get like 10 takes that wear him out so much that the 11th take is the first usable one because it's when he's just tired. And then Kubrick actually reverses his own system on this movie and is like, to get one good take out of a notoriously self-serious actor I need to tell him it's a rehearsal and it doesn't count. And then disregard everything he does after that. It's funny, too, because George C. Scott was not, he was not George C. Scott at this time. No. Right? Like, he had made The no. Hustler, but, like, he He'd really done the hadn't done a lot of stuff. And, like, his early stuff is much more, and this is true in Anatomy of a Murder, too. He's much more, like, serpentine and kind of sinister and not big, not yelling. He's got that fucking beak of a nose that makes him look so predatory. I mean, I love George C. Scott. And certainly an early actor for me where I was like, I like whatever this guy's doing. But uh, you're right. Like, I think he he's it's later when he's doing the really like to the rafters kind of acting that I guess is the apex of that is is Patton. Right. Like that's when it's right. like this guy has found a public figure that, that can fit, you know, how big an actor he is. Uh, and Patton's good. I like Patton. Like, Humongous hit, wins Best Picture, and is the second time George C. Scott publicly refuses to be nominated. 
There, there yeah. are a lot of guys who goes. Don't I, I, even talk to me about right. Oscars. <laughs> right. He really upped the game, and no one's been able to surpass it because you have your people who are like, look, I think competition amongst creatives is stupid. I refuse to attend the ceremony. If I win, I won't accept it. George C. Scott was like, no, I'm telling you, you didn't nominate me. And they're like, we right. did. You're on the list. And he's like, absolutely not. I decline your offer. <laughs> if you look at his IMDb awards page and it says, yes, refuse you know, to even be nominated. Refuse yes, to even yeah. be nominated. And for Patton, it says, refuse to accept the nomination and the award because he did not feel himself to be in any competition with other actors. My single favorite thing about that, though, is that the, the following year, after refusing the Academy Award, he was nominated again. 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 Yeah. They were like, yo, you like that? All right. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, I'm still voting for this guy. That's Frank amazing. McCarthy, the film's producer, accepted the award on Scott's behalf at the ceremony, but returned it to the Academy the next day in keeping with Scott's wishes. Grand opening, grand closing. You know, just get it out of here. Yeah. Take this piece of shit. What, what a he legend. Just, he put it in a big slingshot. He <laughs> shot it straight, straight into yeah. the Kodak theater. That's what they're not mentioning. I, they returned it through a fucking office window. <laughs> it's just funny because when you hear that and you know about George C. Scott, you do. He almost becomes like a Daniel Day Lewis figure in my head. Not that Daniel Day Lewis didn't happily accept his Oscars, but where you're like, did that guy just like never work? And he was really specific about the kind of stuff. And it's like, no, not at all. He did like great horror movies. He did a lot of TV later in life. Like his he, final film was Angus. Uh, that's true. His final film was Angus. No, no, Griff. He was in the nope. Gloria remake after that. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Right. But, you know, like it's not he was not like a pretentious actor, I guess, no. is my point. Right. You know, he was he's a real working guy. I, don't I think know. he was he was. Uh, well, I mean. No disrespect, but he was obviously drag really him. He, he was a bad drag drunk. Him. He was a really bad drunk. And yeah, horrible drunk. And like many actors of his generation, like needed to make money at the end of his career, and so did a lot of right. genre stuff. Very famously, did Exorcist three in like one of the crazier performances right. of the eighties. I think he rules in that. Yeah, and it's great. But it's like it's so yeah. different, even from just like the Changeling. Right? He's in the Changeling, which is this really like solemn, He's serious so horror good. film. He's so good amazing, in incredible. That, and that movie is really scary. But right, that's a very literary serious horror film right and Absolutely. like so yes he he jumps from both of those like within six years it's kind of amazing we talked about this i think in a patreon episode for some reason but he also voiced smoke and cartoon all-stars to the rescue he <laughs> the sure Barbara did Bush i can't remember produced. why because i think ben was saying there should be a villain who's just drugs Right, right. <laughs> and right, he essentially right. plays that. Yeah. Like he's like a sentient cloud of smoke who's like, hey, smoke this crack. But it's George C. Scott playing like full intensity. Wow, you just brought me back to cartoon all-stars to the rescue, which is something I've probably not thought about since 1989. A George um, C. Scott picture. My my brain is melting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just wild that he did it. Like he was one of those guys who, yeah, I think, you know, would do things for a paycheck, but was like, but I'm gonna act. <laughs> like, he wouldn't fucking arrive on set cynically, you know? It was just funny that he was like, it's a job, I just do my job, you pay me to do my job. And it's also funny that, like, Campbell Scott, his son, I feel like, is one of the most gentle actors alive. Like, Campbell Scott never raises his volume above this level. He's, like, permanently in NPR mode. Have you not seen Jurassic World Dominion? This is the first time he, he goes off the rails. His most unhinged performance. And it even is. still, he's like, I'm going to play this like Tim Cook doing a keynote. How dare you do this to me? Why did you unleash my dinosaurs? <laughs> <laughs> that movie is so stupid. Um, 
And and no offense to Campbell Scott, who I think is a great actor, and I think he's incredible in so many movies. But I I think I said this to you, Griffin. Him being in Jurassic World Dominion felt like they called three bigger names. Yes. And they were all like, forget it. And Campbell Scott was like, sure, I'll do it. Who cares? But I'm he's in an office, also whatever. The best performance in that movie, the best part of that movie, and it almost feels like he's giving a strange love-esque performance. Mm. He's doing something in that movie. Yeah. Uh, one other thing before I want to give you guys, uh, I'm going to crack open the dossier, but Griff, a question for you. So George C. Scott is my winner in 1964 on my beloved spreadsheet. You put him as leader supporting? Supporting actor. Okay. Peter Sellers yeah. is my winner for best lead actor, in fact. Wow. Okay. Uh, do you think George C. Scott would refuse my award? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay, good. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. David's spreadsheet is a sham. <laughs> Why is he retroactively nominating things 70 years later? <laughs> he was not alive in 1964, and I refused the nomination and the win. I don't care if my name is in bold. He would have to be deleted. So control F, yes. C, Scott, delete all mentions. <laughs> if he hated award shows, imagine how he would feel about podcasts. Jesus oh, Christ. Geez. Oh, he would absolutely despise us he would be grinding his teeth listening to this to this on pocket casts right now george c scott okay but yeah moving on from george c scott to why stanley kubrick makes this movie so mm -hmm. this is post lolita well i don't know i was almost gonna say like is this his first like true masterpiece but i might go to bat for the paths of glory i don't know yeah what you guys think yeah, but this is sort of the first canonical masterpiece, maybe within its time recognized as such, right? Yeah, because Spartacus is a huge hit, but not recognized as a masterpiece. I, I think it's a, such an interesting question with him. You guys have already talked about, I assume, a few of the movies. Yeah. So I've spent more time like digging in. But, you know, there's a pretty strong contingent of people that would ca call The Killing like one of the best heist and noir movies ever. Killing fucking rules. It rules. I can't, I can't argue with that. And, and at the time, it wasn't hailed as such. But, and there's a lot of retroactive love for it. And like, I think Tarantino was like really, really advocating for that movie in the 90s. And so a lot more people got onto it that are more mm -hmm. our age. But I think in the sort of like in the AFI sense of the masterpiece word, like this is definitely the first one where it was like, okay, our genius is upon us. Like our 1960s auteur hero in America has arrived. Right. And even just the framing of like the killing is a B picture. You know, Paths of Glory doesn't hit in its moment. Spartacus is humongous, but is seen as a Douglas victory more than a Kubrick victory because he was sort of for hire. Right. This is the first one where it's like Stanley Kubrick O-Tour. It comes out. Critics love it. It's liked by audiences. It's a hit. It gets Oscar nominations. Mm -hmm. This is the first one maybe where he's defining the like the specialness of a Stanley Kubrick film upon landing. It, it's, it's also the beginning of like everything he does is from now on is now going to be in a new genre is going to be a landmark film in that genre is going to feel like this just Titan effort. This like gargantuan right. thing of like full metal jacket is the only one that maybe isn't quite there, but like the rest of them obviously are anyway, Stanley Kubrick uh, becomes obsessed in the late fifties with nuclear holocaust makes sense both in terms of his personality and the uh cold war the the the, the times uh people are living in i i was thinking watching this movie for how much i panic about everything 
especially the realities of the world that I cannot control. And it's not like it's no longer a concern. I cannot imagine the base level of anxiety I would have during like the atomic panic. Yeah, I don't like the idea of just knowing that this could happen. I, I, well, not that, of course it could still, I, yes, I agree. It sucks. It sucks. But I'm like, if I had been like a kid in school being taught like duck and cover, I would have been like, I'm out. I don't want to be alive. This sucks. But there's, there's a case to be made that it, it felt that way because it was narrativized to the public that way. Absolutely. Like, right. That is right. something that, as you just said, David, like is still true. Like we are on the absolute yep. brink of nuclear annihilation right now as we are recording. And wouldn't it be a great episode if it just all went belly up at this exact Absolutely. moment? Yeah, it'd be pretty good. Yeah, thank yeah, God no one ever have to listen. <laughs> as, long, as long as it's after Patreon billing in the month, I'd be fine with it. I, it, it is, no, it is, I, it is the thing that is so scary about, like, uh, uh, nuclear weapons is that uh, it's, it's, it, you just have to push the button one time and it happens, like, immediately, you know? But this movie forces you to think about it the same way that the government was forcing you to think about it when you went to school every day. And I, we just don't live in that society right now. No, we just now have agreed to not really talk about it that exactly. much. Exactly. Yeah, let's, let's not worry about it. And that's what Kubrick is sort of fascinated by is as he's like digging into all this stuff on nuclear war and all this is like, this is the quote I like. It's like, what has struck me is their cautious sterility of ideas. Like mm. where... He's just like, you're reading this absolutely bananas stuff, but it's written almost academically with a sort of like, yeah, and then of course, you know, the world would be blanketed in, you know, ash and like, you know, if, if this one little thing went wrong or if this strategy didn't make sense, you know, like he just, it's very funny to think about it this way. I, he's not even getting to that yet, but like just the, the, the ruthlessness of what he's reading yeah. uh, and then the clinical way it's being presented is very Kubrickian. I'm sure he agreed. Uh, and so he scoops up this book called Red Alert, which is, of course, what Dr. Strangelove is based on by Peter George. That is a serious nuclear thriller. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's not a comedy at all. Right. It's heavy. Is it, I assume no one's ever read Red Alert. No, I have not. No, no. I mean, he liked it just because he says it just sort of like, you know, had the right kind of knowledge in it. And but he brings in Peter George and as they're breaking the script and they're joking around, Stanley Kubrick is like, would this be better as a comedy? Like, and that's where things start. You know, I guess they're just like, what if, what if a, one of their jokes is like, what if everyone's hungry and like a sandwich delivery man shows up to the war room? Like things like that, you know, like they, they start to do jokes and they're, they just, they can't get away from the silly jokes of all this stuff. So what if, what if Dr. Strangelove, but with Postmates? Like, is that what that joke is? Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, do you guys think that's funny? A deli guy? I mean, that's, that's draft one. I mean, okay. they, they, obviously, yeah. they kept it out. It's For hard to believe reason, he had to call Terry Southern to get involved. <laughs> well, there, here's the thing. 100%. They bring in Terry Southern to transform this screenplay into something satirical mm -hmm. because they are actually not funny people. The other thing that's important <laughs> is... That Stanley Kubrick had been offered the novel Failsafe, another nuclear right, novel. Right, right. This is often sort of misrepresented, right? Right. Uh, well, basically, uh, there was some kind of lawsuit filed during the production of Dr. Strangelove uh, that meant that Failsafe had to come out after Dr. Strangelove. Yes. Uh, and Columbia put out both movies, so they didn't care. 
but it does kind of kill failsafe, which I've never seen. You're a Sydney Lumet completist, Griff. Have you seen failsafe? No, I weirdly haven't seen failsafe. And there was sort of famously the early 2000s or late 90s George Clooney failsafe. Yes. Yes, which I've seen that. That's pretty I've good. I've seen that but that's too, it. but I've never seen the original. Yeah. That was that was done sort of like Playhouse 90 style, like live to right. tape. Right. It was right. live. Yes. That's why it was yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um I've seen I've seen the original Failsafe. It's fucking amazing. It might really? be Sidney Lumet's best movie. Like I highly recommend wow. it. It is so taut and, and interesting and very different from a lot of his other movies. Um and it's really, really fascinating to imagine a world in which these two guys like flipped these movies. If Lumet takes on uh, Strange Love, yeah. It's it's Mathau? Yep. Mathau? Yeah, it's Mathau. Fonda yeah. is the president, right? Yes. Henry, Henry Fonda is president. Can I amend a thing quickly from our Spartacus uh, episode? Okay. I don't remember anything about our Spartacus episode. I talked about uh, Tony Curtis after he had gone to Hollywood and was successful driving back outside his old acting class and yelling at Walter Mathau. Mm -hmm. uh, that he couldn't get pussy. Uh, that's, I yes. believe, the quote that I attributed to Tony Curtis. I looked up the original quote uh, the other day. The thing, he he drove back outside his old acting class. Uh, Walter Matthau was standing outside in the rain holding a newspaper above his head. And the thing that Tony Curtis yelled out was, I fucked Yvonne DiCarlo. <laughs> Which I just think the specific of that is so funny, I, I, I had to amend it. Uh, fair enough. Thank you for for uh, making that clear. Can I request a like a Patreon only episode about Matthew's sex life? Yes. Uh, Tony Curtis made it sound unexciting. <laughs> I mean, Curtis really worked the bag on Matthew's sex life. <laughs> he but, did. You know, yeah, Walter <laughs> Matthew had a bunch of kids. He had a couple wives. I'm sure he had a little fun in there. Like, you know. Uh, anyway, they bring in Terry Southern, uh, and he. I guess uh, is the one who gets sellers involved in some way, right? Uh, no, sure. I'm sorry. I'm, no, no, other way around. Sorry. Sellers is the one who gets uh, Southern involved because Sellers had given uh, Kubrick a copy of the Magic Christian, Harry uh, Southern. And so that's how it all happens. Uh, JJ's read on the screenplay, though, is that it's Kubrick wrote it, George inspired it, and Terry Southern like finalized it and made it funny. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the, the first page of the screenplay says the story will be played for realistic comedy, which means the essentially truthful moods and attitudes will be portrayed accurately with an occasional bizarre or super realistic crescendo. They're, the acting will never be so-called comedy acting. So basically, the script tries to make it very clear, like, play this about as straight as you want, right? Like, don't, don't you know, like the seriousness will help the comedy, which I think is true. I don't know. I mean, with, with the occasional flourish from Peter Sellers, essentially. Sure. Or, or some of the bigger George C. Scott moments. I did finally have the breakthrough watching this of, of how much of an influence this movie must have been on the Zucker brothers and, and John Abrahams. Totally. Like, it Absolutely. feels like this is the style they lam onto of like, oh, can we even go bigger from here? What if we have the actors play it flatter and the things they're saying or doing become even more ridiculous? Well, but also they don't allow for what Strangelove does, where Strangelove will have whole sequences of technical discussions or relatively like realistic military like code things. Like, whereas in you know, the Zuckers are like, yeah, okay, but there has to be a joke every 20 seconds. Like, you know, no matter what is happening. Like, and at, at the very least, something funny has to be happening in the background or written on a sign or something. But it, it 
does feel like this is a launching point for them. I think also Kubrick is a little bit more comfortable, even as absurdist as this movie is at times, doing things that if you don't think about them seem banal or like as like set up, but are actually a joke. I mean, the whole opening title sequence is just one big dick joke. You know, it's just about how like bombs fuck the world and like the idea of refueling a, p- a plane in midair. Like I'm sure the first two or three times I watched that movie, I never even thought about that. I was like, Oh, this is just a way to like get us into the story. You know, no, you're just zoning out. Right. Aircraft footage. Right. A hundred percent. And then the more you read about it, the more you think about it, the more you're like, Oh, every single sequence here is a sight gag or is a part of the point. And you know, the Zuckers and Abrams are like what David said. They're just like, you will be entertained at all times. Like I, we, we will never take our foot off the gas. Kubrick eventually said to someone, right? Like, yeah, the whole point of strange love is it like, there's so many sex jokes in it. It ends in this big orgasmic finish. Like I was going for something with that. I can, I think I'll find that somewhere. Anyway, they bring in sellers. As we all said, it's a stipulation of the studio that you play four roles for the price of a million dollars. Apparently, Kubrick kind of groused about that at the time. But also, there's this really funny Sellers quote where Sellers would be like, Stanley would be sitting outside my front door saying, what about Buck Schmuck? You've got to play Buck Schmuck. And, uh, you know, like, so that like Stanley Kubrick is just like leafing through the screenplay being like, what about this guy? You could do this. Well, the movie also costs like two million dollars. Like he it's was all sellers. Yes, it was all sellers. And, and in retrospect, I think they were like kind of a bargain. Yeah, he gives you three incredible performances. I really love Stuart Freeborn, who does the makeup for this movie, says that for Muffley, he gave him this giant bald cap to give him this like bulbous head. And he does look incredible as the print, like, because it doesn't look exaggerated, but he really does look like a different guy as a result. Like, yeah, it's it's quite drastic without being he just looks like a you know middle aged guy with with no hair. Like, it's not I don't know. I really love Muff. I, I love all three sellers performances. Uh and the thing where he sprains his ankle and he can't do Kong, everyone seems to think that that's basically, that's kind of just an excuse. Like, he just wasn't into it. He didn't like doing the voice. And they just moved on and they got Slim Pickens. I mean, he always said he didn't want to do it, that he didn't feel comfortable doing the voice. They didn't think he had a, a grasp on the Texan accent. Uh, and I think that role works a lot better with, like, Slim Pickens. Like, hire the real type you want this role to fit into and have him play it straight rather than having Sellers do a satirical take on it. If you're going to have him, I mean, we were talking about before, like which characters of this movie couldn't he play? That's arguably one of the characters that most needs to be played by someone who isn't straining to affect something else upon their their natural disposition, you know? I think especially in that the final sequence where, you know, the Yahoo and all that, like it, it would have felt too broadly comic yes 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 it would have just felt like hat on a hat yeah yeah exactly yeah but but you even like you could very easily see a version of this movie i think where sellers plays uh uh buck and strange love instead of strange love and the president you know Mm -hmm. especially because in those early scenes before strange love enters buck is like the driving motor do you know who the original plan was to cast for jack d ripper the sterling hayden role no I don't. Gene Kelly. Jesus? Isn't that crazy? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. If Gene Kelly played Jack D. Ripper, if it was like Gene Kelly wound up to psychosis, like firing guns and talking about fluids. I don't know. I just love that idea. That's who Kubrick wanted. He wanted Gene Kelly. 
when he doesn't get Gene Kelly, he casts George C. Scott. And uh-huh. George C. Scott then was like, I want to play Buck Turgeson instead. And Kubrick was like, okay. And then he brings in Sterling Hayden from The Killing. It all works out. I mean, it does. everything's I, good. Yeah. Sterling Hayden's great in this. Uh, it is fascinating because Gene Kelly was notoriously kind of an asshole, an unpleasant guy. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But his screen persona was so tightly controlled. And I like, it's like, I, did he ever play against type? Was he ever anything but sort of gentle and genial on screen? Like, as much as there are off-camera stories where you're like, oh, I can imagine that he could be a guy who was, like, yelling his head off Taskmaster, I, I, I just wonder if he ever would have let himself be captured on camera doing that. There's two funny things about it, right? Because on the one hand, he was kind of, he was pretty good at playing a shit heel who changed throughout movies, right? Yes. He was often, yeah. like, Tr- like redeemed his characters were oh, this incorrigible yeah. guy yeah. Yeah. yeah but he had this like um genteel virility you know it was like yes. he was very sexual and physical but it was very uh, it was very safe and appropriate and like ripper is the exact inverse yeah. you know he's like this emasculated psychotic man who is so full of rage because i I, don't know, I, I guess his dick doesn't work. Like whatever, sure. however you want to read it. Yeah, um, that's where I'm reading it. That's how okay. I'm reading it. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that would have been really, f- it would have been fun to see Gene Kelly do that. I think Sterling Hayden is the right person for it, but it would have been fun. That's spot on, Sean. Like the thing about Gene Kelly was that he was so comfortable as a performer and he made audiences comfortable and he could take characters that were a little unsavory and make them sort of family friendly without you really interrogating what's going on underneath the surface, which is why a character like this who is like, all text, no subtext, and shouted loudly. It's like just hard to imagine him letting go enough to do this. As much as the idea of him doing it is interesting. Jack D. Ripper also is very obviously based on Curtis LeMay, who uh, was the head of the Air Force at mm-hmm. the time, uh, who is basically famous for like during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Whenever you read any book about Kennedy, any it's basically Curtis LeMay is in there being like, "Listen, you pansy, we need to nuke now!" Like he's the one who's just <laughs> constantly like, "My recommendation, bombs." Uh, so, and he later ran for vice president with George Wallace. I want to say, cool, uh, couple anyway, of cool famously, guys, famously chill dude. Mm. Um, but then they throw in that disclaimer at the beginning of the movie i guess to cover their asses and not freak people out too much the disclaimer that almost reads funny because it's so again so straightforward where they're like the air force has assured us nothing like this could ever happen and you're like oh cool like thanks thanks like that really settles me down it almost feels like a, a like a Monty Python thing right right it's just it feels it's like bureaucratic language yes the movie gets interrupted to have Eric Idle say like, we are of course obligated by lawyers to. (laughs) And then while they're shooting it, uh, you know, Sellers is improvising some of his dialogue, which Kubrick would then write down and put into the original shooting script. Um, James Earl Jones, uh, as you guys know, is in this film. It's his first film appearance, I believe. Yeah. Um, And he was supposed to, he had a big role He's the one who questions the mission and is like pushing back against everything inside the plane. And eventually Kubrick decided he didn't want the guy protesting to be a black guy and cuts everything out. Wow. And so and so that's why James Earl Jones is kind of in this movie, but doesn't really do anything. 
he's just like an X-Wing pilot. I mean, they just cut to him a lot in the cockpit saying yes, sir, or whatever. And James Earl Jones said to Kubrick, like, but I took this part because of all the good stuff that you're cutting. And Kubrick was like, we don't need it. And that was that. So that's... That's the James Earl Jones story. I mean, because he's already pretty fucking established as a as a stage actor Theater guy. at this point, right? right. Yeah, right. and and you just imagine people viewed his move to films as as somewhat inevitable. I guess as much as a you know black actor could feel that way in the nineteen sure. sixties. Yeah, I don't know. He also was not. He was not like a character actor. He was like he was like Hamlet. Like That's he was the in. Thing. He was in he, Shakespeare. He had done yeah. heavy duty. Yeah. 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 And like he, he'd done all kinds of giant Shakespeare stuff. And I guess the great white hope is a few years after this. And that's gets turned into a movie that that's right. his Oscar nomination and all that. Um, but yeah, anyway, I just remember as a kid, I knew who James Earl Jones was and I was yeah, like, of course. he's in this movie. Uh, but it's, he doesn't do it anything. also just like it, it feels weird to see this voice coming out of him. Like, I'm sure if you yeah. were a theater goer in the 50s or 60s and you saw James Earl Jones on stage, you'd be like, man, this guy can project. And then when there's like throwaway lines by James Earl Jones in a cockpit in this movie looking like a young snack, you're like, who turned up the fucking bass on this thing? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's no reason for him to be like pontificating. Right, right. Um, he's got a great voice. Famous. Incredible. I would say the other big thing is Ken Adam doing the production design. He had just done Dr. No and Stanley Kubrick had loved Dr. No. Obviously, Ken Adam is best known as the James Bond designer. Um, but the design in this movie is so crucial to it working. Right. And it's it feels so Kubrickian, obviously, to have these like big angular sets and the war room just feels perfect for him. But like a lot of that is driven by Ken Adam. Um who justified that it should be triangular to Kubrick, who was very skeptical of that. And he, he and Kubrick together designed the whole lighting scheme so they could stop the cinematographer from designing any of the lighting because Stanley Kubrick always would fight with his DPs about lighting. This movie is like the last vestige of the Kubrick documentary style in pieces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think so mm-hmm. much of that is just that his hand is forced by sellers who like notoriously just hated repeating himself and doing the same take over and over again. So Kubrick was like, I just had to set up six cameras and just get what I got. You can't be as meticulous and this movie shifts between like very deliberate Kubrick compositions which Lolita was obviously moving towards and away from that sort of more fly on the wall approach. And then from this point out, it's like everything is fucking locked down and precise. I feel like there's still some dissonance for me as somebody who has just read a, a lot about him and a lot about the productions of his films. And mm. you get conflicting reports pretty consistently. And this movie feels like an interesting turning point where, you know, you talk about the production designer who's this legendary figure who's well known for basically having like shaped the look of the most powerful ongoing franchise in movie history. Right. Um, yes. And he obviously designed this movie and that in the production of this movie, there's a lot of like commentary or counter commentary about how Kubrick was a real like collaborator, you know, that he was a person who would like sit in a room and every morning for an hour, people would talk and share ideas and he would just pluck the best ideas and he would curate. Mm -hmm. But I feel like publicly his reputation is like monomaniacal, obsessive, singular tyrant. Right. And so like, I can never kind of figure out well, is he a great collab? Like, if you see Film Worker, you know, that, that movie about, you know, his right-hand mm-hmm. person for many years, like, 
is so laudatory and, you know, like really warm about what it was like to work with him. But on the other hand, he has that like hundred take psychology that makes him seem like a demon. And I, I can never kind of figure out like what is true or maybe both things are true about do, it. Do you have thoughts on this, David? Because I certainly do. I uh, Let me say my thoughts because, I mean, obviously it comes up more and more, especially as we're going deeper into his filmography and he becomes more powerful, right? Like he, uh, he has more clout. And it really does remind me of Fincher. And when I did this piece interviewing all of Fincher's collaborators, which I may have said in a different episode, it's like the, 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 the same thing of like the absolute warmth all of them have towards him. And like how dismissive they were of like, oh, the multiple takes. Like people like doing that. You know, people were just, you know, they were just like, come on, it, it's acting, it's work. We all come here to work and we're having a great time. And that's the vibe you get from so many of these. It's not like Kubrick collaborated with people one time and then they moved on. Like mm -hmm. he would, people would return to him and clearly found the process of, uh, you know, Ken Adam, for example, he wins an Oscar with Kubrick for Barry Lyndon a few years later. Like, so it's obvious that if you bought in or if you got onto his wavelength or whatever, that there was such a rich like collaboration you could have with the guy. And then it just feels like the stuff like the Shelley Duvall stories, you're like, well, this is someone who clearly was like, you know, they, they, they were not in, in any kind of um, symphony or, you know, like they were, they were just, there's just some kind of uh, crossed wire and like, the communication seems so horrible here. And then it just, that just sounds like torture when it's being described to you. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I think it's a weird, I mean, I have made this comparison already in other episodes, but like he's compared so much to, to Hitchcock and the precision of the vision and everything like that. Mm. But Hitchcock was a guy who like the movie exists in my head. It's perfect. And now I need to figure out how to communicate to you idiots, how to do exactly what I want. <laughs> <laughs> right yes. right sure yes whereas kubrick i think was really looking for things that excited him like he wanted discovery you know he wanted exploration he wanted the things that he couldn't come up with himself but i think it was like his his sort of exacting control freak nature came in the relentless pursuit of i'm not going to stop until i find that thing and when he finds the thing, it's like, it's exactly that, that it's that without moving an inch to the right or to the left. And I think sometimes he would hire people and say, like, you know, I'm hiring a collaborator like Peter Sellers. And what I'm hiring him to do is be Peter Sellers and give me a lot of material to keep generating until I find the thing I want. And then sometimes be it on camera or sort of, uh, you know, in craft positions or whatever. He'd hire people to say, I like that thing you did in this other movie, and I want you to replicate it here. I already completed the process of finding what I want because I saw it in your previous work. Now just do it again. And I think that's when like, he had difficult relationships with people because then they were like, I'm not being encouraged to create. He just wants to use me as a color on a palette. Whereas other times I think... He was saying, I haven't found it yet. I'm hiring someone to give me options, you know? Yeah, I think um, I have a kind of a reverse relationship, though, to Kubrick and Hitchcock because I think I like Hitchcock at his most powerful. I like him in the North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, you know, Rear Window. That era are my favorite films of his when he's like, I'm in Hollywood and I'm in control of everything. And right. Kubrick 
it does eventually get to this place, right? Where he's like, and you guys, I'm sure we'll talk about this at length in the future, but you know, by the time you get to full metal jacket and, and eyes wide shut, I, I really, I love those movies, but you can feel a man holding a stick very tightly. Yeah. In those movies in a way that this movie is like, you could the hundredth time you watch it, it feels surprising. The hundredth time you watch it, you're like, boy, a lot of really fascinating, like risk taking people seem to be in a room together, making this happen. And I, that's just, for whatever reason, for him, it's just a slightly more charming for me, slightly more exciting. It's also so interesting because, like, Spartacus, the story is, like, I got hired by an actor. I'm on this set with all these fucking August, well-established, ego-driven actors, and I'm fighting to, like, get what I want to have this in any way reflect my voice. And he comes off of that being like, I'm making movies my fucking way. I'm not working for anyone else ever again. But then this is a movie in which he views an actor as a true collaborator. Mm-hmm. And then you get to stuff like, you know, Eyes Wide Shut, where he's working with Tom Cruise at like the peak of his fame. And he's like, you are an instrument. You know, they're all the stories of Tom Cruise coming to him, like crying, going like, what do you want, Stanley? Tell me what you want. And Tom Cruise <laughs> is so obsessed with being the guy who's like, I can execute anything. Right. And, and Kubrick's like, you're a cat. Just wander around until I find what I want. You know, <laughs> you can't deliver it to me. Also, his last three movies, Shining, Full Metal Jacket, Eyes Wide Shut, I think the reason The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut are more successful in that they Mm -hmm. are two of my favorite movies than Full Metal Jacket, which I think is a very good, slightly flawed movie, is that like The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut are about the most tightly wound protagonists imaginable, Mm. so they really fit with a very tightly wound, ultra-controlling artist who is crafting these like very hermetic and frightening and claustrophobic movies. Uh, Whereas Full Metal Jacket, I'm like, I feel like I'm in a room and I'm supposed to be in Vietnam. Like, you know, I I struggle a little bit with Full Metal Jacket for that reason. You're Um, you're so right. And also all three of those movies are really psychological. And Strange Love is intellectual, but I'm not so sure it's psychological. No. No. I mean, no. I the only stuff where it feels more like Kubricky is is the stuff I'm referencing where it's like, oh wow, did I just watch guys put codes into a box for five minutes? Like, you know, that's <laughs> that's just where you're like, I think a lot of directors wouldn't do that. And I and I like that he does, to be clear. I like that he's so obsessed with the process because part of the satire of Dr. Strangelove is there's all these fucking processes and rules and you know, fail-safes and things built in. And then everyone gets in a room and they're like, oh shit, there's so much stuff that we actually can't tell these guys to turn around. Like, like there's so many stupid codes and so many like, you know, uh, systems built up to stop that from happening that uh, one crazy guy just uh, ended the world. Oh, uh oh. And then like, that's why it's equally as funny when the Russian guy, the Russian ambassador shows up and it's like, we built this doomsday thing. I don't know. You guys are so crazy. We figured we had to do something crazy too. And they have to explain all these like logic of that. Like the, the absolutely ridiculous logic of these things. Not, not to like, uh, but it was the, the thing that was like so unnerving from the moment Trump got elected was like, here's this guy who spent the last 10 years going online and going on talk shows and going like, if I were president, I would just do this instead. With no thoughts right. about like, what is the chain of actions that happens from you saying that? And then he got elected and gained no perspective on the chain of action from what he says. And it is like, it's, it's the absurdity of when you cut to a fucking room like this and it's a bunch of guys in suits sitting in chairs 
being like, first pitch, bad pitch, but what if? And you're like, (laughs) the repercussions of what you're casually throwing out are so wild to think of how much they hinge on like a conversation is kind of insane. Yeah, I feel like he's also gotten a little bit stuck in a good way on process and technology being portrayed on screen and like 2001 like there's a huge stretches of 2001 they're just like pressing buttons on how and trying to figure out like what is the right way to do something the same i think is even true of clockwork orange where there's like long stretches of deprogramming where you're just like thinking through what you have to do to the human brain to fix it and he kind of like gets way far away from that stuff as he gets further into his career. But you can see like the same way that I feel like technology just sat right on top of society from like 1960 all the way through our present day. He seems really invested in that. And so that's part of the reason why I think he's like, we're going to sit in this plane for w- watching this movie for like the 60th time. I'm like, God, this is a lot of time on this plane for it's a 90 minute movie. The plane. Yeah. Yeah. For, for when it, it barely matters, except I guess at the end, you're like, oh, I guess we needed to know that the plane was damaged, et cetera. You know, we need to understand why at the very end, this plane just can't be caught. Like these guys are actually too good. Um, which I'd love that. I love that. Where, where, uh, when, uh, Muffley is like, it's initiative. Like, what am I supposed to, you know, he's on the phone to the Soviet guy. He's like, we trained them to get away from them. Dude. When he goes into the safe and pulls out the hat, <laughs> like that, that is part of the plan. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, God, that's like Looney Tunes level joke, but it's so good. But, but I mean, it also gets to like what you were talking about, Sean, of like the, the dick measuring contest of this shit, you know? That it's like the idea of being like the, the cowboy of the atomic bomb. You know, the, the, the man wild enough to ride the thing and that it wasn't an impulsive decision, but that like this guy was going to go out like a fucking cowboy when the moment called him. Yeah, Kong almost like channels Ripper once he accepts that Plan R is real. Like once yeah. he's accepted it, he's like, you're goddamn right we're doing this. How exciting. You know, which is a, what a weird impulse to be like, it is doomsday. It's here and I'm fired up. But- yeah, and I'm going to do it like a fucking man. <laughs> I also, I love um, Keenan Wynn who plays the, uh, the colonel who, Bat, what, Bat Guano, is that his name? Who shows up and, you know, there's just the, the, the super extended sequence of Mandrake just being like, for God's sake, man, give me some money. I need to call this guy on the phone, the president. And he just like the, 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 like the, the, the so slow Ben's laughing. I mean, it, it well, he's like, he's like, you're going to have to deal with Coca-Cola. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great final line, but like, just, just every time you see the layers and layers of rules that have been created out of some sort of like, of course we need these kinds of rules to have a just, society that will not bomb you know at random and then you just watch how all those rules just make everything impossible it's uh it's really good should we attempt to go through the plot of this movie uh because yeah. it is more plotty it's plotty than than maybe its reputation would suggest no it it is but it's just also surprisingly simple or at least doesn't have a lot of sets you know what i mean it's sort of sure. like you've got the plane you've got the you know the 80 843rd bomb wing or whatever yeah you have uh jack d ripper on base with lionel mandrake and you have the war room and that's it right like mm-hmm. there's the one scene of george c scott 
with his girlfriend, uh, the only woman in the movie, I'm, I'm guessing, right? Yes. Yes. I believe so. Oh, there's yeah. no other. Yeah. Uh, Tracy Reed. And uh, that's everything, right? I'm not, I'm not forgetting something. It's one of these deceptively sort of cheap e- economic films, like even though it looks so broad and the sets are so impressive. Right, right. It's basically three sets. I guess four if you include uh, George C. Scott's uh, bedroom. Apartment. Right, yeah, apartment. It. Yeah. So actually, while we're recording this, I was preparing an episode of my show and the theme of the show is like the best one crazy night movies. And I was like, is this mm-hmm. one of the best one crazy night movies? Mm-hmm. Like, this interesting. <laughs> kind of a, kind of the, the, the ultimate one crazy night. It's a fair point. It is absolutely one crazy. It's practically an afternoon. I mean, yeah. this is a short, a short period of time. Yeah, uh, but, but Sean, what about the wolf pack? I mean, that night was so crazy. I couldn't even remember it the next morning. That, that's a wild one. That is a wild yeah, one. So these what, guys wait, so wait. fucking wild. Sean, what was the peg for One Crazy Night? Is there a One Crazy Night movie coming out or something? I know bodies, August is... Bodies, bodies, bodies. Of oh. course. Right, right. Bodies, bodies, bodies. There you go. Um, yes. I know. I just imagine August is the toughest for the big picture because it's like, uh, looking at the schedule, what could we possibly, you know. you know? One could make the case that every episode is tough to do at this stage of Hollywood, but uh, that's okay. That is true. I, I admire the opportunities that you guys have to talk about the great films. We designed this well by accident. <laughs> You're right. It was certainly a thing, like, especially when the pandemic hit, where I was like, God, am I happy that five years ago we committed <laughs> to a format that does not revolve around any current going on. Well, no. Well, that's the thing. But then anytime we actually do have to, like, you know, review a new movie, we're like, oh, this is so annoying. <laughs> we have to do it within a week. I know. Ah! It's maddening. It's like the bane of our existence now. Wait, I mean, in the early days, we would be looking for excuses to cover new movies where we'd be like, oh, we both like Jack Reacher. Let's do an episode because Jack Reacher 2 is coming out. We're yeah. deciding that that is worthy of being in the pantheon of what we cover. And then now we're almost like trying to find ways to disqualify new releases by technicality. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I think um, there are downsides to the format that you guys have. But for me, it's like, so I, can I ring 37 minutes out of Bullet Train? Like, really, do sure. I have 37 minutes of conversation about can a you? movie that is vanished into dust the minute I exited the theater? Um, oh, yeah, that's That's the challenge. But hey, we're all professionals, you know, we can all do it. Right. And look, certainly, I mean, we'll, we'll cover movies that are like that, but also have the added benefit of being decades old <laughs> and not seen by anybody. Those are my favorite episodes, though. Right. And then, exactly, we can have fun being like, well, what's this over here? You know, whereas it's, you <laughs> right. know, what, what do you have for lunch? <laughs> People were like, well, all time best tangents. Griffin asking David what he had for lunch in the Loveless episode. I had a burrito, but let me tell you guys, I ordered it. We, I got home this morning. I, we, there's no food in the house. I ordered delivery from like a place around the corner. Thank you. And they sent me the wrong order. They oh, sent God. me a different David S's order. Oh, there's my God. two David oh. S's ordering at the same time. David S. Ward? Uh, and I just David called them and they. And they just ran me my order, and I gave them the other guy's order back. It, it all worked out. Wow. That could have been an inspired bit in the sandwich delivery scene in Dr. Strangelove that Cooper oh, had conceived. Like, what if they got the wrong Mr. President sandwich? That's what he was missing. Oh. That is actually what he was missing. The joke was right there, Stanley. Uh, I, I, David, and you running down the basic shape of the plot, 
which I do think we yeah. should delve into a little more. I do think that's a thing watching this as like a, a 10-year-old or whatever that confused me is I was actually a kid who liked this type of movie where there's like a fundamental misunderstanding or miscommunication in the chain, the ripple effects of which put the entire world on edge, right? Like okay. we, we talked about in some recent episode how much I loved uh, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming yeah. as a kid which is a movie that is like kind of similar in its setup where, and it is also like a comedy about the Cold War, you know? Cold War comedy, similar era, 66, yeah. Right, or, uh, I mean, one of those movies that I remember thinking was so funny as a kid, and yet I don't think I could tell you a single thing that happens past the 15-minute mark, The Gods Must Be Crazy, a movie I assume plays terribly today, but one of those things where my parents could pitch me like, here's the premise of the movie. They find a Coke bottle and it destroys their entire understanding of reality. And I'm like, funny. I understand like comedic cause and effect. This movie, I think if you're watching it as a kid, it, it's hard to even gauge when the realization of what's going on with Ripper has happened because it's done in such a sedate, dry way. Right. It's, it's, it's very ordinary until it's not. Right. Then he gets crazy, but like that happens so much later than the point where Mandrake figures it out. And it's when, I guess it's when Mandrake has the radio, right? Like, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the revelation. And again, Sellers underplays it just so well. He's like, you know, funny business. You know, I was listening to the radio here, you know, doing all, I wish I could do him. Yeah, I don't know about the plot, Griff. Like, it's like, yeah, you see the planes. They're airborne. And then you see, man, you know, you see Ripper issuing wing attack plan R and you see them doing all the communications and all that. And then eventually Mandrake realizes there's no attack order. Nothing is happening. Uh, Ripper has just gone mad. Ripper locks them in the office, starts talking about fluids. And then we cut to the war room pretty much, right? We cut to well, Buck yeah. with his right. girlfriend and then we cut to the war room. H hinging on this sort of overthought idea that once that plan is put into effect, all communications have to be ceased because they're too worried about their enemies interfering with false communications. That right. now a false communication has set them in a place where no one can correct them with the real message. Yes, the only guy who can undo it is insane. Yeah, I, I, I mean, he's also... You know, there's a lot of unfortunate kind of like sexual metaphor to read into the entire movie. But like he's trying to put a prophylactic around the whole base, right? Yeah. And everybody else, especially George C. Scott, is like, I'm ready to fuck. Like a, the movie literally starts with like him <laughs> right. in the bathroom getting ready to fuck. And then he's like, well, I can't fuck here, but I have to go downstairs and fuck in the war room. You know, like that's sure. Every setup is about a man trying to have sex with something. Well, and it gets back to like the weird cowboy uh, sort of fascination with with the bomb of like it, it's all these like it's 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 sport for these guys. You know, it is like a sexual thing. The idea of being able to dominate on this scale to control that much power, Conquering. even if it fucking kills them. Right. They feel like I'm, I'm going to die like John Wayne. Right. It, it's what Scott plays so well is. You do buy him as the general, of the Joint Chiefs, presenting options to the president, but then just like the hint of excitement he clearly has at like, look, what if we actually do it? You know, <laughs> right. we could, we, maybe we could catch him with their pants down. You know, we, you know, the, the famous, you know, uh, you know, 10, 20 million, we'll get our hair must. But right. like that, that he's like, look, I've spent my whole career planning for something like this. We might as well, ah, you know, the ball went down the hill. I'm not going to go get it. Like, 
right? Let's like, just let's see what happens. You know, maybe we knock him out. His biggest concern at this point is almost just being blue balled. Like he's so <laughs> close to <laughs> right. the thing that he's waited his whole fucking life for, prepared for. It's how it ends too, you know. And he's like, uh, "We need to be prepared when they take over more underground caves." So that when we emerge, so our numbers the mind are stronger. <laughs> right. The mind chef gap. Yes. Yes. No, and like, I, it, Muffley is a very funny performance. Like, it is a good comic performance from Peter Sellers as a slightly ineffectual wet blanket of a president. Mm-hmm. He modeled it on Adlai Stevenson. Like, he's doing a thing. But you're also kind of watching this guy be, like, plainly heroic. And he's like, fuck it. I'm going to call the Soviet premier. I'm just going to give him the, like, location of these planes. I'm going to, like, plainly be unmilitary, right? I'm going to just be like, just shoot those guys down. We're sorry. Total mistake by us. He's not going to, like, be an evil war hawk. You're watching a guy, you know, do the decent thing in a weird sort of a way. It doesn't really work, but, like, it's cool. It's cool. It's such an interesting point, too, because to Griffin's point about don't look up in the Meryl Streep character, it feels like the last time in American history where a satire like this, the most reasonable person in the film was the president. And it's, that's a great call. It's because right. Kennedy was the president and he seemed like a, if not reasonable, at least a measured person in the face yeah. of possible nuclear annihilation. And so yes. that choice to make everyone around the president crazy is so smart and works so well in this movie. But that, that's the thing that Nixon breaks where it's like, now we know a president can exist in the modern age in the media who can behave unpresidentially at right. the very core, not just do corrupt things, but like clearly lose it, you know, <laughs> like not be able to hold their shit together on camera. And then from that point, the possibilities comedically get a little uh, out of control. Can, can I throw out 1960 is the year that Bob Newhart releases the button down mind and button down mind strike back right which are like the best-selling albums of that year and and win the grammy for album of the year uh yeah sure i i feel like a heavy influence on the way uh the president's uh phone call with russia play out in this movie like they are essentially right. doing the peter sellers i'm sorry the bob newhart bit like peter sellers is doing newhart where the joke is in filling in the blanks of what they must be saying on the other end of the phone only getting the reactions in a conversation where it feels like the other person is saying the larger things. And isn't, isn't it, isn't that the album that has Abe Lincoln versus Madison Avenue? And it's like the presidential inspiration connected there too. I I do think like, that's the most clear cut example because he's really kind of pulling Bob Newhart's format, which by the way, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Shelley Berman uh, kind of created before Newhart. Newhart maybe lifted a little bit, but Newhart at least popularized to a different degree. Um, but but even just comedically, I think the whole tone of this movie is very much on that wavelength of the Abe Lincoln versus Madison Avenue, where it's like, can you really dig into the banality of these conversations around things that we view as being very important and dramatic? Uh, right. I mean, there was some quote from James Earl Jones where he was saying that like, Kubrick's main thing was he constantly wanted them to be eating that he kept yes. on giving them like Twinkies to shove in their mouths and shit and he was like I think he was just really into putting these very banal mundane things in the middle of a very high pressure situation which gets to the the meal order and everything right this is the quote I think uh, 
that was a comment on how people deal with fear. I think he liked the mundane aspect of hor- horrific events. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes sense. Like, again, that's sort of, that feels like a Kubrick conversation that would not be observation, Jesus, uh, that would not be obvious to other people. Yeah. I think all that little detail stuff is so funny. Like, obviously, the big lines in this movie hit. It, when it gets broad, it works. They were probably right to cut the pie fight or whatever. Like, they probably recognized the moments where it was like too much. Like, strange love is probably the limit of how broad a thing can get. Um, but strange love works too. But I just love all the little stuff you're talking about, like the conversation with the Russian premier or whatever. Like, it, it, all, all the little haggling that George C. Scott does. Like, that stuff is just as funny as anything else. Um, the line where he's like, um, he would see the big board. <laughs> that line is so <laughs> when he's funny. protesting the ambassador showing up. Like, God, I have to say too, because uh, and he's come up in a later episode already. But I, I just was really getting Tim Robinson vibes at times. Oh my from God. George we, C. We Scott. have to stop invoking Tim Robinson on our Okay, I'm sorry. It's just, I couldn't forward. help it. You don't understand, Sean. There's it. like 20 minutes of talk about this on the Shining episodes. More. <laughs> More. No, but it is, it is that thing of like the complete commitment to absurdity. You know, just like yeah. full throttled. I, I strongly believe what I'm saying. I'm getting too emotionally worked up about it. I think the only other person who could do all four of these roles is Tim Robinson. Tim Robinson. Agreed. Yeah, he, yeah. Imagine the remake. We're starting to realize that perhaps Tim Robinson is the only person who could have starred in every Kubrick movie <laughs> aside from who he actually <laughs> cast. Yeah. Born too late. The only, yeah, the, I mean, like, so the attack is happening. They're trying to figure out how to recall it. They bring in the Soviet ambassador. They, you know, they try to call up the premier on the phone and he reveals, well, we have this doomsday machine that if anything goes off in our country, it's just going to blanket the world in nuclear fallout. And so everything will be destroyed. And that's when Dr. Strangelove comes in. I feel like he's the last element to arrive. And I remember as a kid, like you say, Griff, I was like, I get that this is funny. Obviously, this is a big, broad performance. But what is going on? Like, who is this? Why would he be here? And I remember my parents having to be like, well, after the war, you know, there were all these German scientists, like, you know, like having to explain the context of that bit to me. It makes me laugh so much now. And it's almost a more understated performance than I remembered. Yeah. Is that crazy to say? No, he's not actually at all. kind of, you know, he, he, he's kind of quiet with the lines a lot. You know, you, you just remember him shrieking and he doesn't really shriek that much. Like, it's, it's, am I, I don't know. Like, it's, it's almost, subtle at times it's the one character that plays most in close-up yeah right i i feel like this is a movie that's really big on on wide shots uh and and holding like you know your master shots for like the entirety of a scene as long as you can and and his stuff is played really close like when he starts talking he is kind of the only thing that exists on screen and so so if he were over the top, it would play even bigger at that range. And you're right that he is actually pretty controlled. And yeah, he saves the mania. I mean, he really takes a while to build up to it and picks his moments very strategically. I can't remember. I don't know. I'm going to get the title of this wrong, so forgive me. But, you know, there's a story that Orson Welles used to tell about starring in a play called something like Waiting for Mr. Wong. Mm-hmm. And he was playing Mr. Wong and everybody had to wait through the first two acts of the play for Mr. Wong to show up. 
and that like <laughs> you really needed to deliver on Mr. Wong because like, yeah. everybody who showed up for that thing. Doctor Strange was kind of the same thing. I mean, you have to wait almost 55 minutes just to get yeah, to sellers as Strange Love. Why is this movie called Doctor Strange Love? And even at the end of the movie, I'm not even totally sure why it's called Doctor Strange Love. It's just the best title, yeah. but it's not the most representative title. And there are like so many titles that they that they messed with that I'm sure you've seen, David. Like they're they Kubrick wrote down like 30 different titles. Half of them are kind of genius and would have been great for the movie, and yet somehow Strange Love and that character, like it became the most emblematic thing. But but yeah. you're right that it's kind of a miracle that the character actually does deliver. He does. And that it feels like a heightening when we've already had like two sellers on screen because they only create that expectation by calling the movie that. Like they, the movie is not foreshadowing him. Right. If his name were not in the poster, that pressure would not be on the character. You could see a reality in which the film had one of the other titles, which I'm sure David's about to run down. And that, then when Dr. Strangelove shows up, you're like, oh, pleasant surprise. In the last act, there's this. Peter Sellers character you'll never see coming versus me as a kid. I'm leaning and going like, when are we getting a fucking strange love? That's where the money is, right? Uh, like wonderful bomb is a funny one that he, he came up with that is kind of amusing. Dr. Doomsday or how to start world war three is one that feels like it probably came close. Sorry. How to start world war three without even trying. There. Um, okay. The, the weird one is Dr. Strange loves secret uses of Uranus. I don't, know what got cut from mm. the screenplay uh that that would make more sense uh what else i'm looking at he has like there's this like uh note page yeah that piece of paper that he like don't knock the bomb uh dr doomsday meets ingrid strange love he's just like writing shit down i i i don't, don't some of don't this look stuff doesn't up. make sense <laughs> don't look up vice <laughs> yeah the big the, the big short uh-huh. what was it called is that what it's yeah. called how do I yeah. not remember? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. Some of the names they don't use. Uh, General Buck Schmuck. Uh, <laughs> Alexei. Alexei Dissidesky. Uh, so it was going to be called Ambassador Assad. That's kind of funny. Major Nance. Lieutenant Quentin Quiffler. I like the idea of Peter Seller saying, not only am I refusing to play Buck Schmuck, but th- there should not be a fucking character named Buck Schmuck in this movie. Take that out of the goddamn script. One of... The funniest scenes to me, and tell me if this is too dark, is when Sterling Hayden kills himself because of the, the monologue that Mandrake is doing that's so banal. Where he's like, yes, yeah, some, some water on your neck. That's what you need. You know, uh, that'll wake any man up. Like the, yeah. the whole, oh, it's so funny. And then he shoots himself. It, it gets me every time. Yeah, it's fine. I don't know what you guys think of that. It's funny. Sure. I'm just trying to look at some of these other, I'm trying to look at these other names. I just feel like the, the bomb in Dr. Strange Love or how to be afraid 24 hours a day is just an amazing, good. how to be afraid 24 hours a day. Yeah. That, I like that. That's really good, but it's interesting that Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb is the only or title that works. Like, even the other titles that are good, you're like, you could have t- picked the back half or the front half. Mm, yeah. When you put the or in there, it's too much. I think it has to be called Dr. Strange Love, and they were right to pick that, even though it doesn't really set you up for what the movie's going to be. Um, just because it, it, it's just a great name. It just it just sits in your head so well. You'll you'll never forget it. Yeah, and 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 also just the fact that like when the character arrives, as you said, he delivers, so it it feels earned in your head. You know, there's no more context about this movie. Like this is like the most chill Stanley Kubrick shoot. 
He doesn't fight with the studio that much. Mm-hmm. Everybody's basically on board with what he's doing. Sure, George C. Scott's a bit much, but he respects him. Like, this is just the one that is not loaded with either big fights with his producers or crazy tales of a hundred takes driving people mad or anything like that. Like, and like you say, Griff, like it's a hit, you know, moderate hit, and more importantly, gets Oscar nominations and whatever becomes just whatever the most respected comedy of all time in some circles that's why when sean picked it i was like wow you picked kind of the most unimpeachable one in a way like it's it's an interesting pick sean you had your pick of kubrick's that was i'm very grateful for that um of course well you were i don't think i said when i first saw it and i I actually don't know when i first saw it but it is definitely not the first kubrick that i saw Um, so what was i i definitely saw the shining before this and i definitely saw full metal jacket because it was on hbo nonstop in circa 1990 um so i i I may have even seen 2001 before this as well so then that's the the only one i'm not sure i may have seen that first there was one of these i saw these two but just to see this movie and like not know anything about killer's kiss or the killing or lolita or spartacus or any of i didn't i never saw any of those movies before i saw this but i had seen all of his sort of like later period masterpieces and this is the biggest what's it to me. This is the biggest like, how come you never tried anything like this again? Because you're so good yeah. at this. Yeah. And it's the one that is the most singular to me. It's the one that I probably watched the most, obviously the funniest. But it's also, you know, there are 900 million like NewYorker.com essays about this. But it's the one that's like, this movie still applies. It is nothing has expired about it at all. And even though we don't live in an age of nuclear panic, it's like, this is exactly how government works. This is exactly how power operates. This is exactly how like masculinity motivates people to do awful, stupid things. And so it's, it's this unusual document. A lot of his movies, I'm sure you guys are talking about, like really continue to resonate strongly. But this one in particular, Mm -hmm. I'm like, it nails the absurdity of, of modern life in 1963. Like that's wild. But there, there is the interesting aspect of, I mean, you asking why wouldn't he do this again when he nailed it with this is like, it felt like he was sort of competitive with himself in terms of if I've succeeded doing something, then the next challenge is to take on a different type of movie I have not made before and see if I can make it better than everyone else, right? I'm going to make the scariest right. movie of all time. I'm going to make the most sort of like intellectually respected comedy of all time. I'm going to step up to the table, pick a genre, pick a milieu, whatever it is, a technical challenge. And like once I knock that out of the park, I have no interest in repeating myself. I think part of the other reason that it's interesting to me is the last thing that you said, David, which is that it's not a film that is mired in like production controversy, which I do think creates a lot of interesting conversation. But he's one of the few people who I'm like, I don't really care about that. Like I, 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 I do care about it with David Fincher for whatever reason, but with Kubrick, the movies themselves are these big ideological tentpole concept driven films that I think are worth just like tearing apart and looking at closely. Especially also starting with this, if Kubrick fights with people, he wins. He always triumphs. Mm. It's not like some of these other auteurs where it's a, you know, whatever, a, a give and take or a, but like one for them, one for me. Like, right. Yes. Kubrick loses some battles on like Spartacus and Lolita, but, after Dr. Strangelove, like as much of a pain in the ass as he could be, he ends up making a revered movie that is discussed forever. Like that's that is so it, it gets a little boring to talk about it. I, but I that, it's an interesting point you raise because I feel the same way, but I almost think I, I, I have become less interested 
in that side of Kubrick over time because of how much other people are obsessive about it and and focus on that more than the movies themselves. Like, you know, what I, I will read any fucking interview with like Fincher or Soderbergh or any of that classic guy, James Gray, these guys who are like so good at explaining their process, their interests, their tastes, their beliefs on the industry at large, there's nothing elusive about them. They are, they're charming and funny and intelligent and they're open books about like, this is exactly what I was going through. This is how I work. I want to demystify the thing. And something about how elusive Kubrick made himself makes it so easy for people to project all this fucking shit onto it. And I think also they want to believe that he was just this absolute galaxy brain genius who saw everything more clearly than everyone else and did everything perfectly. And it's like, that's so much less interesting to me. You know, I mean, like Terrence Malick is another person who is like spent decades being reclusive by design, doesn't speak to the press, doesn't explain his own work. There are questions about his process and all of that. But as much as I find his process more interesting to consider because it's so organic and shapeless until it comes together, there's that lack of intentionality. I'm also not like I need to read diaries of the day-by-day accounts of how he's working. It, it is fun, though, to hear Adrian Brody talk about making the Thin Red Line in a way that like maybe it's not as interesting to hear people talk about the production on the Kubrick films. Right. I, because because you're like when it's like you're gambling when you're getting cast in a Terrence Malick movie, yeah. you know, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, no, Malick is so much more fun, right? You're like Kubrick. What was it like working on a Kubrick movie? He was very demanding and exacting, and he made the exact movie he wanted to make. It was a lot of takes. He had it in his head, right? Yeah, yeah Malick's yeah, yeah. interesting yeah. because Malick shoots like a fucking choose your own adventure book, and people are just <laughs> like, "Well, they didn't choose that adventure. <laughs> it's not in the book." And, well, and also Malick just. It's like he's this like fey creature from like an elvish land. They're just <laughs> like, oh, you know, this sort of jolly, mysterious guy in a straw hat. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I had just done the best acting of my life and he was shooting, you know, a dandelion instead <laughs> right, or whatever. Right. And, and then he like assembled the movie and he was like, you're not in it except for one shot. You should come to the premiere. And I went and I saw it and I wept at a masterpiece. <laughs> like, you know, it's like it just sounds like a delightful experience. But they all call him Terry in every They interview. all call him Terry. He's, he's Terry. And no. None of us idiots will ever call him Terry. No. But every actor who has been cut out of his films is like, well, Terry is a dear friend. David, by the way, he'll never call them and say, you've been cut out, no. but by the way, come to the premiere. An assistant or producer will say, you should come to the premiere. And they show up in their fucking finest yeah. wares waiting to see themselves up on the big I, screen. I think I just remember, I remember a Clooney interview yeah. where he, Malik told him, like, you're not really in the movie, but I'm using your one speech for Thin Red Line. And Clooney said, I begged him to cut it out. Like, yeah, I was like, please don't just have me in one scene. It would look so weird. And Malik was like, no, what are you talking about? And Clooney said, like, I love the movie. Like, yeah, whatever. But but certainly upon hearing it, it was just like, please don't do that. Please don't have me be sticking out in one weird scene. The first time I ever watched Thin Red Line, it was with my buddy Doug Rosenberg, who is uh, at college, and we rented it from like the school library and went to a private viewing room or whatever. And when Clooney came on screen, I think he literally like fell off the chair onto his knees and was like, he's introducing George Clooney two and a half hours yeah. in. <laughs> like this yeah. so disrupts 
the ecosystem of every, you can't just casually throw in a quick Clooney monologue. George Clooney, like at his absolute hottest season yeah. four of ER, you know, three <laughs> Kings, like really it's so, I love that movie. I need to rewatch it. Yeah. Fucking masterpiece. We got to do Malik. We got to do Malik. Yeah, we should do Malik. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, should we do Malik, Sean? Who should we do? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I want in on, um, on song to song. I just feel like that is like really sort of discussed mastery going on in song to song, capturing the hotbed of Austin circa 2011. I that think, was really. Look, I think those three hated movies are really interesting. I do too. I really love Night of Cups the most. That's the of one. The three I weird ones. Yeah, yeah, but song to song is the one that I like. I just remember seeing it like the Dolby screening room and being like. Uh, I don't know. I have to write a review. Oh shit. Like, and I would like to return to it. That's yeah. the one that I had the most trouble with, but uh, I do like all those movies. I like all his movies. It's fascinating that a hidden life is like, I mean, uh, part of it, I guess is timing or whatever, but was like the most quiet comeback movie of all time. Fucking rules. Like he had this mysterious legacy, then made three bombs that made everyone go like, is this guy a false King? And then he had this like, return to form movie that already I feel like has kind of been forgotten. He foretells the like on stage personal crisis of Ben Affleck arguably better into the wonder than in Gone Girl. Like Ooh. he is like ahead of the curve Ooh, on that's what's a good happening take. to Ben Affleck. You know, yep. like there Malik, he knows more than he lets on. And I feel like I should rewatch to the wonder for that reason where it's like, I saw it when it came out and I was like, Oh, this is sort of interesting that Affleck's in it. And now as part of the Affleck taxonomy, it is it was it would be feel crucial. It's an interesting text. God, I somehow had completely forgotten that he has made a Jesus Christ movie with Gesso yeah. Rorig as Jesus Christ and Mark Rylance as Satan. That that's something five years away in the editing room from us getting to see. Yeah, I mean Malik rules. There's no debate about that. He absolutely rules. He rules. But he's only seventy eight. He's got he's got a bunch more twirling left. It's great. It's we're gonna get more Malik. Should we play the box office game, guys? Can we do that? Yeah. Are there any final thoughts you have, Sean? Yeah. Is there any strange love stuff we haven't mentioned? Um, my favorite tidbit is that Stanley Kubrick cast one of his heroes' daughters in this movie and put her in a bikini in a scene. That's just <laughs> absolutely absurd. Like he, Carol Reed's daughter is Tracy Reed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that's uh, crazy. You know, like he really aspired to make these sort of like patrician beautiful english you know he makes barry linden later on and so i just there's something very perverse the whole movie is very perverse but that in particular is a very perverse act in my opinion yeah that is interesting that's not a closing thought but it's a little indicative of like have we really put our finger on just how quite twisted stanley kubrick is the guy who made lolita and eyes wide shut like he's a he's a weird horn dog and um it needs to be reminded of that a weird horn dog. Oh yeah. boy, would One I not want to be in that bedroom? Like, no. yeah. yeah. And I, I'm a horn dog. I respect it. But I'm just like <laughs> both this. You're right. Both like all the movies here. And I swear, shut. I'm like, I don't. I don't think I'm interested in whatever He's got this some is. Unique predilections for sure. D did she have a thing with Peter Sellers? Because I'm looking and like after this, her two biggest credits are Shot in the Dark and Casino Royale. She was married to Edward Fox. Mm -hmm. All really? the way up until the production of this movie. Okay. And then mm -hmm. they split up. And then I think it makes it seem like maybe she made a leap to sell her suit. I mean, obviously, he was very active at this period in swinging. He was swinging quite London. active. Yeah. 
Another guy where I'm just like, I imagine uh, having sex with Peter Sellers was the most vacant activity in the world. <laughs> I mean, it's obviously the thing everyone talks about where like there was no guy there beneath the characters. <laughs> right. Well, but imagine if he stayed in character during that, the act. Then it'd be thrilling. I'd I love mean, to strange fuck some love of in bed. these guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. No, keep me away. No, I don't want it. I don't want bits. No bits. Those are my closing thoughts. Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick is a perv. Yeah. Okay, so this movie, which box office game should I do? Should I do the one where it actually is on the charts? Which is the end of February 1964? Why not? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. When, when does it technically come out? That December? Technically or came out right at the end of January 1964. Oh, wow. So it's getting nominated for Oscars a full year later. Yeah, man. And wow. like, shit, we didn't even talk about those Oscars. I don't even know what beat it. Do you guys? Well, let's, no, I mean, let's talk about that. Let's fucking pull it up. Uh, my fair lady, my fair lady, pretty boring. I mean, not I great. love my fair lady, but that's not a good movie. And like, you know, whatever. Yeah, George Cukor wins best director. Rex Harrison wins best actor. Come and on, this is boring. Yeah, as hell. this is pretty boring. And Julie Andrews, of course, wins best actress. That's a great Oscar win, but that's it's a great so win. shady. Uh, right. for Mary Poppins. Um, but then Peter Ustinov wins supporting actor for Top Cappy. Even though he won for Spartacus like five years earlier, you know, you could give that to George C. Scott. I don't know. That just feels like a, a Christoph Waltz thing where they were just like, we just love what this guy's doing. Give us as much yeah. of this as you got. Has an actor ever been nominated for best actor for playing multiple parts since this happened? I think this is the only one. Ka- kind Hearts and Coronets? I'm trying uh, to think. Like, was he uh, not Nicholas Cage in Adaptation. Oh, good. Good call. Page and Adaptation is a good call. I don't think Guinness got a nomination for Kind Hearts and Coronets. Okay. I'm yeah. double checking that. Uh, obviously, that's a notorious uh, multiple. No, he didn't. But that's he pretty did cool. for just Lavender to, Hill just, Mob. Yeah. Just, oh, Lavender Hill Mob. Okay. So just to see. But that's like, not multiple roles. All three characters being nominated for that performance. And then thinking about what Rex Harrison does in My Fair Lady. You know, Rex Harrison, God bless him. He's very talented. But come on. Peter Sellers and Dr. Strangelove? Come on. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. agree. Army Hammer, of course, not nominated for uh, <laughs> Social Network. I know. Paul Dano not nominated for There Will Be Blood. I'm looking at like lists of yeah. famed uh, multiple roles. These are all twins, though. You're all twins. Or, we're talking yeah, about twin characters. I know. You know? I know. No, These are exciting. three separate and distinct humans. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. Tom Hanks not nominated for Cloud Atlas. Rude. Right. Uh, Ewan McGregor not nominated for The Island. Um, it is it is an interesting... <laughs> that, that is a good performance. Especially the second guy, I think, is a really good performance. I, I, agree. I agree. It's it's an interesting point, and, and you're framing it as, like, how insane is it that they snubbed Peter Sellers? I look at this where I'm like, how cool is it that they nominated him? Despite him being yeah. a big movie star at the time, this being a big film and whatever, it is such a unique nomination to be like, this guy is the lead of the film because he plays three supporting characters in an ensemble. Right. It's true. Yeah, you're right. And, and it's a big... Look, the other nominees are Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, both for Beckett. So two <laughs> fucking titans yelling at each other yeah. in robes for three hours. Like, that's, you know, that's Oscar uh, catnip. And then Anthony Quinn for Zorba the Greek. 
Uh, and they all lose to Rex Harrison being like, where are my damn slippers? I, look, I love Rex Harrison. <laughs> but it do, is but... like, if I'm Peter O'Toole or Richard Burton, I'm like, come on, I put it all on the stage yeah, I for did you. The, like a most fucking acting. <laughs> yeah. I had a damn crown. <laughs> I had a crown. I did have another thought about a, a real missed opportunity on two different roles, which mm. is um, John Travolta as Sean Archer and Caster Troy in Face Off, I feel like, you know, because he's oh, embodying... Yeah. When his face is removed, he's mm. playing a second. He's playing Caster Troy in John Travolta's body. Yeah, like have we, we've never had an opportunity for that. Could Peter Sellers do that? Yeah, I think he could. <laughs> he maybe could. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the things that's impressive about Sellers is like he disguises himself less thoroughly than a lot of the other people we're talking about, who who throw a lot more on top of themselves to differentiate the characters visually. You know. Like, I mean, they talk about how, like, he wanted the head shape change for the president, so they didn't just put a bald cap on it, but they sort of elongated right. the shape of his face and whatever. But he still, like, basically got the same face, and he puts different wigs and mustaches on top of himself for most of these movies, you know? He's not a major, like, prosthetics guy. Uh, no, yeah. The other thing, too, about the Oscars is, like, it's a missed opportunity to nominate Sterling Hayden. Um, yeah. and he's like a very complicated character in Hollywood history. I don't know if you guys talked about this on The Killing, but just his participation in HUAC, and there's this amazing documentary that was made about him, and his life was kind of falling apart in the 80s. Um, but he... This is the first time when, like, his personal struggles, like, were actualized in a movie, and then I felt like filmmakers only used this in movies going forward, where they were like, this right. is a man falling apart who has, like, an ethical crisis going on. And like in The Godfather and in The Long Goodbye. And it's really, it basically like, it fortifies his persona going forward in a way. And Kubrick like identified that really well. And he's really great in this movie. Yeah. I mean, The Long Goodbye performance is the one that really jumps out to me of like, the the idea of a sort of golden age Hollywood actor who became too messy for that controlled era. And then in New Hollywood can kind of be reclaimed as the guy who's gone through the shit, who's like on the other side and is sort of towing these lines. I mean, his performance in Long Goodbye is like spiritual. It's, it's, it feels like he's just operating on a different wavelength than the rest of humanity. Uh, I love him. I do feel like we didn't mention the Huak thing, mostly because that's, I guess that happens after the killing, right? Like when the killing yeah. is what, 48? Right, it's between uh, no, the. No, when's the killing? No, killing I'm wrong. Is, what wait, are we talking about? What? what? The killing's fifty six. No, it's before. Good. It's before. He's like he gets re he, yeah. he gets reintegrated into Hollywood in some ways, which is kind of unusual. But I, if people haven't seen it, I can't remember the name of the film, the documentary that it's like a Greek produced documentary about Sterling Hayden that is one of the most like punishing things I've ever seen about a guy at the end of his life being like, "What have I done?" Um, I think wow. it's called. Pharaohs of Chaos or something That's like it. that. Is that what That's you're it. talking wow. about? Yes. Incredible title yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, he, he, yeah. Apparently he's smoking hashish and drinking heavily throughout so that they have a record of alcoholism. And uh, yeah. Ooh, this sounds crazy. He's torn hmm. asunder. It's wild. I got to watch an amazing thing. thing. Yeah. And he's just saying, this is the worst thing I ever did that I, you know, that yeah. I cooperated with Huak and all that. Yeah. Well, he's just also one of those guys with the most incredible, you know, slab of a face. And I love to look at him. And like fascinating at every age. And shot, shot below like he's Mount Rushmore in this movie too. That angle that he's shot from. Yes. He looks yeah. like a giant statue is yeah. har harrowing. 
Okay, the box office game. Yeah, so the uh, the Oscars, it's just a boring Oscar year. It's My Fair mm-hmm. Lady. It's a lot of Beckett. It's Zorba the Greek. Mm-hmm. Never seen Zorba the Greek. Neither have I. Um, no. I uh, it's an incredible, 64 is an incredible year for movies, in my opinion. Uh, you got Women in the Dunes, which is actually nominated. You got Umbrellas of Cherbourg. You've got Hard Day's Night, for crying out loud. The Beatles, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great time. Working like a dog. Um, but anyway, this movie comes out. Let's all right. So number one, it's you know you were talking about uh, Russians are coming, and what's the other one you were talking about, Griff? Uh, Gods must be crazy is much later, but yes, yeah. But both of those are movies where the t- the poster has a million guys on it, right? Yes, like yes. the poster's trying to give you the sense of like, oh my god, there's so many people. This number one at the box office is a comedy with a the same vibe. Like you won't believe how many people. Huh. Are involved, but it's it's not mad 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 world. It is. It's it a is. mad 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 world. Yeah. Yes, I mean that's another one I was fascinated by as a kid. Where I wonder if I watch it now, if I would find anything in it funny. It's gone all the way around this, the globe for me. It was a kid that my aunt showed me probably fif- like fifteen times whenever I would sleep over her house. It was her favorite movie, and as a kid, I got so sick of it and hated it. And then I rewatched it a couple of years ago, and I was like. This is a masterpiece. Really? It's really, should, it's, it's really, really hard to do this. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to do ensemble zany comedy. It's also funny that I loved it so much as a kid, and it was my introduction to almost all of their people and their screen personas. Right. Like, you compare that to something like, dumb analogy, but grant me this for a moment, Endgame, where you're like, <laughs> does this movie have any weight for people who haven't watched the fucking 25 things leading up to this? This movie isn't doing the work of setting up the characters themselves for this one film, perhaps. And Mad, 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 Mad World distills everyone's comedic persona so well that I'm like, I get what Buddy Hackett's deal is. You know, I'm not like coasting off of my love of seeing Buddy Hackett show up and cut it up with Ethel Merman. I'm meeting both of them and right. immediately understanding their appeal. It's a great call. Um, that's funny. Now I want to rewatch that. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen that in full. I've seen it on TV. Like, I don't know that I've ever... Very long movie. One of the the longest comedies ever made. Number two at the box office is the Best Picture winner of 1963. One of the most forgotten and derided Best Picture winners of the 60s, but a movie I like, partly because it stars one of my favorite actors. Around the World in 80 Days? No. Mm. I've never seen that shit. (laughs) It's not Greatest Show on Earth. No, I've never seen that shit either. Those are like the two Best Picture winners. I'm like, I'm not rushing to those. Right. Yeah, fuck that. I don't want to see him. It's not Tom no, Jones, it's, is it, it? It's Tom Jones. Well, I it's don't Tom feel Jones. like that's that derided. I know you love Tom Jones. I'm always on Letterboxd seeing people file their three stars best picture question mark reviews Bullshit. of Tom Jones. <laughs> yeah, no, Come that's on a, now. That's like a cool best picture winner. That's one of the ones that makes you think maybe the Academy should not be torn down. It is crazy that in the middle of like a lot of, you know, very staid Oscar winners, there's just one costume drama where it's like, what's it about? And it's like the horniest guy. Everybody wants to fuck him. Uh, what do you think of Tom Jones? Three stars on Letterboxd. For sure. <laughs> uh, Best picture? Uh, question mark? <laughs> I think uh, it's a little bit of a thank you for changing British cinema movie, but this is the least good of your good movies. Wow. Like, mm-hmm. it's not it's as good as A Taste of Honey, Loneliness and Long no. Distance Runner. Not as good as The Loved One, which comes right after it. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It's a movie that's it's built cool. on one performance. You know, Finney is Which great. is a very good performance. Yeah, he's great. But it's, it's like, it's pretty, it's pretty mid, I would say. 
Yeah, wow. it's also just again, but again, to give you the run of best pictures in the '60s, it's at the Apartment, West Side Story, Lawrence of Arabia, Tom Jones, My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music. Like it's like all these very totemic movies, and then Tom Jones kind of sitting in the middle there. Anyway, Tom Jones is number two at the box office. Number three is Doctor Strange Love. Now, number four is a movie that I almost brought up. It's another political thriller with kind of a similar vibe, but it's serious, hmm. and it's a movie I really love but it's also about like the military clashing with the president in okay. a big cold war plot. Well, it's not, it's not fail safe. No, I'm sure you like this movie. It's written by Rod Serling Griffin. Oh, why am I not thinking of what this fucking is? Uh, uh, fuck, 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 fuck. fuck. Cause it's Serling didn't write that many movies. Uh, Sean, do you know it? Do you know what I'm talking about here? Um, great ensemble cast is is it is it is it seven days in May? Seven days in May. John oh. Frankenheimer's okay, wonderful political thriller. Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, Frederick March, Ava Gardner. So, uh, I just want to share a take that I've shared in the past before, which is that this movie comes in the middle of the most underrated five year run in any American filmmaker's history, which is John Frankenheimer from 1962 to 1966 makes. Bird of Man of Alcatraz, The Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in May, The Train, Seconds, and Grand Prix. So wow. that's fucking good. It's very similar to what you were just describing, Griffin, where Kubrick is like, I'm going to try a different kind of a thing every single time. Slightly yeah. different genre move, slightly different style of filmmaking, and I'm going to nail it every time. And all, all of those movies are brilliant. Okay, that's my, sorry, that was my spiel. I've seen all but The Train. I gotta see The Train. How have I never seen a movie called The Train? Might be the best one. Burt Lancaster plays a French resistance fighter at the end of World War II. The Nazis are trying to steal very valuable French art and get it into Berlin. And he's trying to make them not make the train go. The whole movie is how he doesn't want the train to move. It's great. Wow, who plays The Train? Thomas the Tank Engine plays the train. It, it's an oh, incredible he's young, performance. Young, he's young. Yeah, he's Whoa. young. Fresh yeah. face. Yeah. Fresh yeah. face. His first film. It's like James Earl Jones in this incredible. where you're like, I didn't realize he was acting at that point. <laughs> Seven Days in May completely fucks. Movies used to be so much simpler where you could just say, hey, it's Burt Lancaster in The Train. I'd be like, there, done. Sounds good. Agreed. It's, it's just great star in The Blank. And you're like, perfect. <laughs> Can't believe no one thought to make a movie about that before. Number five at the box office is an Otto Preminger movie. Uh -huh. um, big, big movie. Got a bunch of Oscar nominations, including, I think, Best Director, but maybe not Best Picture. It's, it's not Man with the Golden Arm. No. It's not uh, fucking Anatomy of a Murder. No. Um, it's... It's not his performance as Mr. Freeze on the Batman TV show. It's not that. Good call. But Thank no, you. it's not that. I believe it's a religious drama, uh, which might be a clue to its title. Uh, is, it, is it The Cardinal? The Cardinal. Oh, yeah. wow. Thank you, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. Not a movie I've seen. Nope. I, wouldn't, I would not have gotten it without religious drama. That's the only yeah. Otto Preminger religious drama I'm familiar with. Some kind of, you know, Irish Catholic priest, moral drama kind of thing going on. I don't know. Uh, it's got interesting a good fact about Saul Bass poster. I'm looking at it right has now. It's a very cool poster. Yeah. And Pope Benedict, the, the later to be Pope Benedict the 16th, was the liaison officer from the Vatican for this movie. Wow. A <laughs> little, little bit of trivia for you. It was, it was also the first 35 millimeter blow up. 
Oh, oh that's the cool. first movie to be shot in 35, but projected on 70th. Some other movies in the top 10. You got Man's Favorite Sport, question mark. The Rock Hudson, uh, Howard Hawks comedy, um, which uh, I've never seen. Um, Paul Apprentice. Uh, you've got Love with the Proper Stranger. That's that Natalie Wood movie. That's a I feel like wild we brought that movie. up recently. Yeah, yeah I brought did, it up. Were we I talking about it? What reason? With Steve have you seen that? I haven't. I, I, I just would like to acknowledge that I have a big crush on Paula Prentice. Um, just, mm. just, it, Ooh, I'd be remiss wow. if I didn't say she's really, she has my heart. Parallax been. View. What else is she in? Oh, she's in the Stafford Catch Rides. Catch 22. Right. What's new pussy yeah. 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 Oh, and she was in, in a sitcom with Richard Benjamin called He and She. Married oh, to Richard Benjamin. She's been in Richard Benjamin's life for many, many years. They are still, still, still kicking. Since right? 1961. They're both still alive. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Richard Benjamin. Just a ridiculous person. A 60-year-plus marriage. Good for them. Good for yeah. them. I mean, shout out. Yeah. It's awesome. Those kids, those kids might make it. What if, what if, like, by the time this episode comes out, she's filed for divorce? Oh, God. Irreconcilable <laughs> differences. Um, <laughs> what was the thing I was going to say? Lo- Love with a Proper Stranger. Neither of you have seen it, right? I haven't seen it. It's a fascinating movie because it's, like, a, it's, it's about abortion. Uh, at a time where you cannot believe a movie can that candidly be about it, but it's also about it in a relatively light way. And it's one of McQueen's first movies. And it's like, essentially, it feels like viewing an alternate path his career could have gone, where you're like, what if Steve McQueen was Paul Rudd instead? Right, right. (laughs) Like, he's just kind of playing like young, glib guy in it. And he's, he's very funny in it. It's a good movie. Natalie Wood's really good in it. You've also got The Victors, which is a war film starring Albert Finney, among other people. Mm-hmm. Big, boring Carl Foreman movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got The Misadventures of Merlin Jones. That's a Disney comedy, right? That's a Robert Stevenson movie. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. And uh, I don't know. Merlin Jones invents some bullshit. All kinds of stuff happens. Um one of those things. And then you've got Sunday in New York, uh, the adaptation of the play starring Jane Fonda and Rod Taylor. It's a lot of movies I haven't seen. It's yeah. an interesting box office game. You know, it's a lot of stuff that with movie stars um, that I don't really know that well. Jane Fonda reflected in 2018. She was surprised how many people say they love Sunday in New York. Why? I too am surprised. <laughs> Jane Fonda, not a fan. But yeah, that's it. I don't know. And then Dr. Strangelove goes on to be a moderate hit. And then uh, Stanley Kubrick goes on to make a little movie called 2001 A Space Odyssey. And by that point, he's like on the other side of his divorce. He's remarried and he's firmly established in London, right? Like that's sort of like the beginning of like it's Stanley from, Kubrick, it's the from fortress. Lita on, right? I but mean, like, like this is the one where it's like it shoots in London because he's going through the divorce, you know, like because right. there's like reasons. And like, I feel like by 2001, it's like, yeah, you come to me. Like, here I am. I'm here. It's the last, it's the last time he also like makes a movie in 18 months for the last time. And then yeah. from here on out, it's like everything will take five years. Right, right. Yeah, right, right, yeah. right. It's it's also right. He like kind of rewrites the rules of what a director career can be in a certain way. It's also just funny. Like I was watching the fucking making the shining or whatever it's called the Vivian Kubrick documentary short. Every time I see a clip of Stanley Kubrick speaking, I'm once again surprised he doesn't have a British accent. And I know like I know he's from the Bronx. I know he wasn't British. 
but I just half expect that he, like, from being there for so long, affected a Madonna-esque lilt at the very least. And then every clip of him is just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't, don't fucking do that. <laughs> That's my Stanley Kubrick impression. Uh, d- d- don't do that. Uh, that. That ain't no good. So my entire family is from the Bronx and Brooklyn. Yeah. And um, let's just say that hearing Kubrick interviews is a, is, is a nice warm bath for me. Oh, sure. Just, it, t- it takes me home. Yeah, you do think of him as English in your head. It's true. That is and, like, and even just like voice when you look at mouth. photos of young Kubrick, I'm like, I see that guy living in the Bronx. And then when you see old sort of wizard Kubrick, right, with the beard, right. I'm like, that guy must be British. A British voice must come out. Um, we're done, Griff. We're done. I just ended the podcast forever. This is our final episode. Sean, thank you so much. For being on the podcast well what, what do we have left to do we had sean fantasy on people have been asking for this for fucking seven and a half years you're right well we have to have sean fantasy back now oh now that's a reason back. to keep going no i i said griffin I, we haven't discussed this but i said to david that i would only do this if you guys came on the big picture so i have to figure out hey, that's true I, we're gonna do a home and home i wanted i don't know what you want to do but i want to do what you want to do so you tell me what you guys want to talk about on the pod that's a good and we'll question. do something so brainstorm it we will air them in the in relative vicinity to okay. one another. Yeah, yeah. We have we have a few months. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And if you if you wanna if you wanna theme it up, we can theme it up. You know, if you wanna, you know, if you wanna just write Strange Love too on the fly on a pod, we can do that too. Cool. Um, I leave it in your hands, both of you guys, all three of you guys. Um, this was an honor. I'm I'm I feel blessed. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Thank you for doing the show. Hey, it's so it's so cool. Truly, it's it's one of those things. I mean, you've been. Uh, uh, a, a supporter of the show for a while and anytime our listeners would see you tweet like a new stack of Blu-rays or see you <laughs> oh, logging yeah. on Letterboxd one of the directors This brings me such joy. Yes. Right. <laughs> They're, perverse they just, joy. Every miniseries they go like which one is he fucking doing? That's very sweet. I mean it, honestly just because I am listening to the show and watching the movies with you guys until now. Which is nice. Until now. Which look is much appreciated uh, but, but it, it, I think it has driven people insane. I think they have had blue <laughs> balls for like three fucking years. We kind of screwed up. We should have just never done it. That was maybe the I know. It was a good bit but whatever. It would have been yeah. And then you'll yeah. and you can keep him guessing. You'll come back at some point and okay. you know All right. yeah just keep him guessing. Well should we just Batgirl this episode? <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> What if Put we, it on the shelf. What if we realize that we stand that. to make $70 million by never releasing this episode? <laughs> Sorry, some guys. weird tax loophole. We had him on the show, but it, it saves us millions. What Sean, can I we're tell you? You, you can never hear it. A fourth, a fourth, a fourth. The windfall of this episode is just going to be insane. Sold, which means no one will ever even hear this conversation. No, oh, and no, it's, a, it's a problem, one, actually, because we've already recorded the next episode and Michael Keaton's in it, and now that's not going to make sense because we haven't established him. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Keaton's gonna uh, appear like three more times in this miniseries and everyone's gonna go like when did they make him a permanent third <laughs> host well I feel comfortable announcing that I'm actually gonna be the next Batman of I'm course. the post Pattinson ah. Batman so you know that's I'm, I'm breaking it here for you guys I love the idea of Michael, of Michael Keaton being Batman twice but the second time never being seen <laughs> <laughs> right he's just out there yeah, there's just a lost three-movie Batman arc. Um, Sean, everyone should listen to the podcast that you do that they already listen to because they're the biggest podcast. Listen to the Big Picture. Listen to Rewatchables. I just, I just finished the Unforgiven episode. I'm caught up. Thank you for listening. Thank you for having me. And um, thank Good you for out. all the work that you guys do. Love your show.
Hey, that's uh, 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 wow. too nice of you to say. Thank you. Take us out, Griff. Uh, thank you all for doing all the work that you do in listening to the show. And I ask you to continue that work by rating and subscribing, the annoying things that we just have to tell you to do every week. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media and helping to produce the show. Thank you to uh, AJ McKeon, Alex Barron for our editing, Pat Reynolds, Joe Bowen for our artwork, Lee Montgomery, the Great American Owl for our theme song, JJ Birch uh, for our research. Go to blankcheckpod.com for links to some real nerdy shit, including our Patreon Blank Check special features where we do commentaries on franchises, among other things. We're currently doing the Roger Moore Bonds movies that have a lot of Doctor Strange Love War Room typesets. It is funny how this movie, this uh, hiring a James Bond guy to design the war room uh, changes the way you're allowed to put these things on screen forever. Like now they have to look like this or they feel too boring. Uh, I don't know. That's the final point. I shouldn't be making this. Uh, this I'm trying to end the podcast. <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? Tune in next week for 2001 A Space Odyssey. A pretty big movie. Yep. Guess TBD. Guess TBD. Yeah, we can't we can't even say. And as always, I was looking at a list of uh, actors who uh, played multiple roles but didn't get an Oscar nomination. And there are a couple big ones that we forgot about that I just want to quickly shout out uh, people who should have gotten Oscar nominations, including uh, in past episodes. Uh, Lindsay Lohan in The Parent Trap. Of course. Uh, Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future Part 3. Sure. Yes. Right? That's, I, I guess... Two yeah, another, and three. Two and three, yeah. Yeah, he should have gotten two Best Actor nominations back-to-back -back years. Um, uh, 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 wait, I had another one here. Fuck, I don't know. I give up. <laughs> Great. Good. Done. No, wait, what's, um... What's his name in Assassin's Creed? He plays two characters. Yeah, great. That's the final one. That's the end of the episode. It's Michael Fassbender in Assassin's Creed. <laughs>